This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello and welcome to Transformation Ground Control, your podcast about change, strategy, digital transformation, business transformation, any sort of change your organization might be going through. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Parisa Noble. Parisa, welcome back to the show. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we're excited to have uh, a couple guests on today. We're excited for today's show, as we always are. We're, we love talking about this stuff. We have a couple guests. One is Stuart Robb, our Vice President of Europe, Third Stage, or Third Stage Europe. And he's going to be on the show later talking about some of the emerging technologies within digital transformation. So things like machine learning, robotics, artificial intelligence, all that good stuff, all that stuff that we hear about and the buzzwords and talk about the practical application and the reality of where those technologies are. So we're excited to have him on the show later today. And before we have him on the show, uh, we're going to have uh, Dan Krug, who is the vice president of IT and talent management at Newcore Steel, which is a client of Third Stages. And uh, we've been partnering together for a few years now on their transformation and helping them in a number of different ways. And I'm excited to have Dan on the show. Not only is he a great guy, very interesting, very informative to talk to, but just the scope and the breadth and magnitude of their transformation is just a really good case study uh, in terms of what to do, what not to do. And also, uh, Nucor as an organization has a very unique culture and the way they manage their consultants and the way they manage their transformation initiatives. It's very unique and something I haven't seen before with other clients. So it's going to be fun to unpack, unpack that with, uh, with Dan later. But before we get to that, um, just to maybe preview or set up the conversation we're going to have later with Stuart about emerging technologies. I know, uh, Parisa, you've been doing research in this area as well, and you had, you had some thoughts and questions around those lines as well. Yes. Well, it's interesting to see how prevalent technologies like AI are becoming specifically within the last year or so as companies have kind of diverted to this remote uh, organizational structure, right? We have companies that are starting to want to monitor their employees and make sure that they're actually working. Um, one of the articles that I recently read uh, referred to it as a digital leash on their remote workers. And it's really utilizing things like camera monitoring, um, keystroke monitoring, all the way down to facial recognition tools um, and different ways that people can, that employers can really monitor and make sure that their employees are doing their job, which I find interesting because I feel like you can tell if an employee is doing their job based on their work right? If they're right. meeting their, yeah, if they're meeting their deadlines and they're putting out what they're supposed to put out, isn't that, you know, a metric that would work and be enough? <laughs> you would think so, but, you but know, yeah, right. I know it's, it's definitely an interesting uh, landscape because even companies like Microsoft put out um, technologies that help define a productivity score and it uses AI technology like this to see, you know, how involved are their employees? And they actually got some backlash over it because 
I mean, you, you start kind of getting into the privacy conversation. Um, and it sounds like, I mean, just based on, for example, uh, PwC is a company that put out a facial recognition tool for financial firms uh, that would help them monitor and ensure that their employees are sitting at their desk and doing their job when they're supposed to be supposed to be. And there's another company called Fujitsu, which developed an AI tool that recognizes how hard somebody is concentrating in a meeting or in a class by analyzing their facial muscles. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it seems a little much, don't you think? Yeah. And I, I guess I didn't realize there was a universal uh, set of muscle movements that, that occur when you're concentrating versus not. I, I had no idea. So. I know, right? Isn't it weird? And I mean, I, I'm pretty sure, keep me honest, but at its core, AI is pattern recognition, right? So it's it's learning your face, you know, your expressions, et cetera, and building out what that possibly means. Maybe you're distracted and, you know, not paying attention at all. So it's interesting yeah. to see how that's now trickling into the workforce. And I don't know, do you think it poses a liability concern for these companies if they're getting into this level of monitoring their employees? I guess it depends on what they do with that information. I mean, if they act on it and they, you know, they fire you because your facial uh, muscles aren't <laughs> functioning in a way that proves that you're concentrating, that might be more of a, a legal liability if you, if you act on it in that way. Um, I guess if they're just using it to study just how productive the overall company is and they want to try to find ways to get people more motivated or whatever, I suppose that might be okay. But I think it, to your point, I mean, it's, it's one of those, it's, it's a cultural thing too. You know, if you, if you want to create a culture of, uh, trust and collaboration and flexibility, uh, that's not necessarily aligned with these technologies or, or vice versa. The technologies aren't aligned with that, that culture. Uh, but you know, there are companies out there still, I know it's not cool and people don't like to talk about it and academic you know, researchers don't study these types of organizations, but we see it all the time. There's still a lot of companies out there that are more of that, you know, old school command and control type of culture. And, you know, they focus on efficiency and productivity and stuff like that. And maybe, you know, in those cases, maybe it makes sense. It's kind of aligned with that culture if that's how they want to be, you know, as they, as they evolve as an organization. But when you think about like a, call it like a, a tech startup in Silicon Valley, I can't imagine that that sort of tool, even though it's cool and it's pretty, sounds pretty advanced, from a technology perspective, I can't imagine people are going to be excited about that. You know, if you're in that sort of a startup or a fast moving trust based collaboration based environment. Um, so I think it's just a good reminder. That there's a lot of technology out there, a lot of options, but they don't necessarily all need to fit your, your organization or your, your needs. Right. Exactly. I mean, this is a huge conversation around OCM and, uh, you know, if you decide to implement a technology that monitors your employees, I mean, what does that imply? Like you said, I mean, it's going to probably hurt the trust or at least not move it in the right direction. So again, it depends on your company culture, I guess. Now, if you think about it from the other side of it, if if there was a company doing camera monitoring, for example, and then they caught, not caught, but if they saw somebody else in the household on the camera, I mean, that could definitely trickle into some privacy laws, depending on which country you're in and what privacy laws. But, um, you know, it's definitely testy waters right now. It seems like it's a relatively new technology. And the reports say that it was getting popular before COVID, right? It was gaining traction before COVID. And then COVID just completely, again, acted as a catalyst as we moved 
to a fully technology-based, you know, operation across the board for all companies. So, I mean, with the with that adoption rate, you you will see these types of technologies coming into play. Now, one thing I thought was interesting is that there are right to disconnect laws that have been passed in France and in Ireland. And there's people who are advocating for it in the UK. And it sets a clear line for when communication between a worker and their boss needs to stop. Now, I don't, I don't think we have anything like that in America. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. It's, right? it's more of a more of a free for all here mm-hmm. than than in in Europe. Yeah, corporate America, I guess, right? But uh, I mean, I'm curious to see how these types of laws will impact the use of AI and um, just gathering data on independent employees going forward. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a definite uh, balancing act. It sounds like a lot of organizations are going through because you know, on one hand, you've got to you know, largely distributed remote workforce, or at the very least, even as life returns back to semi-normal for a lot of workers, I don't know that we're just going to swing back to, you know, full-time eight to five, Monday through Friday at the office. It's probably going to be some sort of, some sort of hybrid, I would imagine. So, you know, how do you, you know, the question then becomes, how do you, how do you manage that? And how do you ensure productivity and um, and that sort of thing. I've heard a lot of people, though, I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot of people say that they're actually, they feel like they're more productive and cramming more into their days now that they're not commuting and they're at home. And it's sort of, it's, it seems like work time is sort of bleeding into home time for, for a lot of people, at least people that are office jobs or the type of job where you, you can work remote. Of course, there's still, you know, there were jobs that never were remote and never will be or could be just because you physically have to be there, you know, in a manufacturing shop floor or if you're a healthcare provider or whatever the case may be. So, but at least for those office workers that do have the option to be somewhere else, it's interesting to see, it'll be interesting to see where the pendulum swing lands and then how technology does or doesn't fit into that and how the cultural impact uh, plays out there too. Right. Exactly. Cause if you're in the office and then you go home, it's an on off switch, you know, it might, you might check your emails on your phone or on your computer at home, but you can turn it on and off when you're at home it overlaps with dinner time and <laughs> your once upon a time downtime that you may or may not have. But another thing too, to, to kind of piggyback off of what you just said is, you know, we're kind of in a new day and age where a lot of the employment laws that, that are in place now were designed years and years ago and they, they protect employees from, you know, harassment, physical harm, health, safety, et cetera. I don't know that the data side of it and data protection and kind of the digital respect, if you will, for your employees has really made it into the baseline employment laws that we're seeing uh, today across the world, really with any company. So I'm curious to see, isn't it an interesting time to be alive? I mean, we're, we're literally witnessing the fastest rate of growth in technology ever before. So it's like our, our cybersecurity efforts accelerating at the right rate with it, our, our employment laws, like I just said, accelerating at the right rate with it. It's, it's a whole scope where we need to approach it holistically and make sure every component of our day-to-day is covered as we start pulling in new, these new technologies into our day-to-day as well. Yeah. And it's a, it is interesting. It's also in addition to that fast rate of change or the fast pace of change with technology, it's also a good reminder of how much of an impact technology can have, not just on the traditional metrics like how efficient we are, or, 
you know, top line revenue growth, bottom line profit, stuff like that. That's important, but it's also affecting uh, culture in a way that, you know, systems and technologies haven't really done before. And, and it just seems like technology is permeate, permeating our lives so much that if you were to choose or, or to roll out, let's just say, a, a facial recognition technology at the workplace to see if you're paying attention in, in a meeting, it's not just about the technology and what it can do. It's also about the impact that has on your organization and the, the behavior and the culture and the feel. And I think a lot of times things like that can sound like a better idea than it really is, or, or people don't think about the unintended consequences of rolling out something like that. It's probably, you know, I don't know how it all originated, but I imagine it's someone who just said, Hey, I have a great idea. Here's a technology that could see if people are paying attention that way companies can be more productive. So they're, they're trying to think of it in a positive way and looking at the, what the positive side is, but just like a lot of technology, there's a dark side to that as well. So it's a good reminder, I suppose, that you know any sort of technological initiative, you want to make sure you understand what that impact on culture and the organization really is. Right. You said it in an interesting way, the dark side of technology. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. It's There's pros and cons in every everything you do. So that's the truth. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> well, good. Well, I'm excited uh, to talk more about that. We'll kind of build on that whole thread that you just started there, Parisa, when we have Stuart on the show here a little bit later. And uh, it'll be good to talk to him about some of those emerging technologies and uh, look forward to having him on the show. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have uh, Dan Krug on the show. So uh, Dan is the VP of IT at Nucor Steel. We're going to talk about his transformation, some of the lessons learned and advice that he would give uh, people that are going through a similar transformation. We'll be right back with more on Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. Excited for our next guest um, here to talk about their seven-year digital and business transformation journey. Although, as I'm going to uh, talk about here uh, with Dan in a, in a second, they, those are terms that they don't commonly use to describe their their journey. But I think most of us would refer to it as a as a business and technology transformation that they're going through. And just a really good a guy that has uh, never been on the podcast before, but we've had him at our stratosphere, in-person stratosphere events in the past. And he's just a, a goldmine of information and wisdom and uh, a lot of good lessons learned. And what's really interesting too about speaking with Dan is that he's always very uh, open and transparent about what he does and doesn't know. So there's a lot of things he doesn't know, which uh, you could argue is just as important as all the things he does know. And uh, just recognizing that knowing where to ask for help. So uh, it's interesting also to talk to him and hear sort of where he is right now in the trenches and where his team is and the organization is 
as they go through their transformation. There's a lot of really good lessons there. So with all that being said, uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's looking forward to this. Yeah, likewise. You're, you're always a big hit when we have you at any event. So I always appreciate your time. You're very busy. You, have a, you guys have a lot going on being the industry that you're in, which I, I want to get to here in a second. So I know you're very busy. Your organization's very busy, given that you produce steel and that's in high demand, I hear right now. <laughs> that, that's correct. Correct. Demand yeah. is good for steel right now. Yeah. So uh, as we're getting settled, before I uh, ask Dan to introduce himself, if you don't mind, I'm keeping an eye on the different streams here. So if you see me looking around, I'm, I'm looking at uh, different devices that have the multiple streams up and we're going to have questions here, uh, or I'm going to encourage the audience here to ask questions. But in the meantime, if you don't mind just putting in the chat box where you're where you're uh, dialing in from or where you're joining us from here today, I'd love to hear just to get a sense from, from where the audience is. Um, so if you don't mind doing that, that'll help us just understand the audience a little, little bit better as we're getting settled and getting introduced. So while the audience is doing that, Dan, maybe just tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, maybe to start, just tell us a little bit about Nucor Steel, and then I'll ask you a little bit more about your role, just for people that may not know who Nucor is. Sure. Yeah. Nucor is the largest producer of steel and steel products in North America. So uh, any end market that steel would go into, our, our steel finds its way into. We're very diversified. So whether it's a, a car, a bridge, a building, furniture, hot water heater, an appliance, um, uh, if it's a, an end market that consumes steel, we're, we're likely in it. Um, one of the other things that we always like to mention when we talk about ourselves is that we're North America's largest recycler as well. So oftentimes when people think of the steel industry, they think of big blast furnaces and uh, miles and miles of, of rolling mills, and that, that's not us. Um, we run electric arc furnaces, which about 80% of the material that we melt is recycled steel. Um, uh, and uh, we recycle over 20 million uh, tons of steel each year that would otherwise likely go into a landfill. So um, given the world of sustainability that we live in, we're, we're particularly proud of that. Um, we've uh, been making steel since 1969 and um, have had a long history as a company of, of uh, not laying off teammates, paying for performance. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as a small company that just has a lot of places to it. Um, and our culture is really, really important to us. Uh, we're a flat organization uh, where, where we would hope every teammate shows up every day feeling like they have an opportunity to, to make a difference and change how the company operates. So um, I personally feel real fortunate to, to be a, a team member with this company. It's a great place to be. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting here you describe it as a as a company that feels like a small company. And I totally agree with that as, a, as an outsider that has sort of been outside looking in, helping you guys over the years. It, I would never guess if I didn't know who you were, I would never guess that you were, you know, Fortune 500 company, right? You know, America's largest steel producer, one of the U.S.'s biggest companies. It just doesn't have that feel. Not that you don't know, you don't have a good uh, scalability and that sort of thing, but just the, the culture, I think, is a big part of it. Right. It has a very customer centric and small team feel to it, which is very unique, I think, for a company your size. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to do with the small towns that we're in, we, we feel like a small town company probably. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have a way of retaining that, that feel when you, when you acquire companies too, which uh, we'll come back to that point. Right. Too. So what is your, what is your role at uh, Nucor? You know, what, what, maybe talk about, maybe start off with where you, how you started uh, your journey core and where you're at now. Okay. So uh, I, I joined the company almost 20 years ago. Um, 
<clears throat> and I was uh, my my history before Nucor was was in operations and and um, human resources. And Nucor hired me into an HR role, and uh, I became the the general manager of human resources. In 2016, my my career path changed considerably, and um, I, I became the general manager of digital innovation. Um, we we are a very decentralized company, so that that role really had a lot to do with leveraging um, a, a data platform to, to build BI and digital experiences for our customers. So uh, I was in that role for a few years and then consumed um, uh, the, the overall IT function for the organization, which was really surprising to me since I did not have a technology background, um, but has been just a fantastic experience. I've, I've learned so much and, and it's just been a great journey. Um, and then last year, um, under our new CEO, uh, I, I assumed, uh, in addition to my IT responsibilities, uh, responsibility for talent management uh, across the company as well. So I've got uh, both the technology and the talent side, which is, you know, you and I have talked a lot about, Eric, you know, you, if you're engaged in technology and you're not engaged in people, it's not going to go very well. So it's an interesting combination to, to work across those functions in our company um, and it's 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 been a great combination a lot of fun more more synergies than what people might might think mm -hmm. yeah and you have you have such a unique background that's really well suited for for that role uh, it, and i think a lot of people could learn from that or a lot of organizations could learn from that and the fact that you came in and whatever it was 2016 i think you said and didn't have a bunch of it background i, I remember at the time you saying you know i know very little to, to nothing about about right. technology and you were the first to admit that and i think that actually worked to your advantage because you didn't you didn't get sucked into some of the techno speak and the right. uh the common traps that you know a lot of tech focused people will, will fall into you were thinking of it more from a operations and a people perspective first and then technology was just sort of something that was along for the ride that you had to learn about along the way which i think is in a really important nuance that has made you successful in this role well, it, it didn't it didn't feel helpful at the time. It would have felt better to know more at the time. But in, in retrospect, I, I do think it was probably helpful. Um, you know, when you're when you're new in a role like that and, and people know that you're inexperienced, you do get to ask a lot more questions, I think. And you can ask dumber questions. And I, I got to ask a lot of questions about what people inside the company needed. And, and I asked a lot of very simple questions to our customers, too. And um, I think a lot of those questions I asked, people were, were like, wow, I can't believe he's asking such a simple question. But in some cases, those simple questions were, were really helpful for us to, to think through things differently. So it was it, it was it was good, um, uh, but it, it was uncomfortable. It was definitely uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I want to ask you a, a couple questions here in a second. But in the meantime, just to give you a sense of where uh, people are joining from. They're really all over the place. We've got uh, someone from the UK, uh, Minnesota, Texas, Los Angeles, California. I know we've got someone from Spain here on, on Crowdcast. Um, and uh, so far on YouTube, I, I'm not getting a, a read over there on, on YouTube, but uh, we've got a, a global audience here right now. So appreciate right. everyone that's joining and um, feel free to chat a question at any point along the way. I'm going to keep an eye on those and it won't interrupt us at all. And I'll, I'll sort of moderate and uh, fire away with with questions here for Dan as as you guys um, pop them into the chat boxes here. But in the meantime, I have a few I wanted to start with just to set the context and, and get a feel for 
transformation at, at Nucor. And I, I want to focus quite a bit of time talking about the current journey you're going through the, you know, the, the seven year journey you're going through now that, um, that we'll talk about, but even before that, maybe just to preface that, I think if we back up and just look at Nucor as an organization, I don't know if a lot of people know this about Nucor, but Nucor is a well studied organization as it relates to innovation, disruption, uh, particularly in the steel and not just in the steel industry, but in just in general, how to build a business that can be disruptive and innovative. And maybe could you talk a little bit about the whole, you know, how Nucor really burst onto the scene and that was it the eighties when the whole mini mill concept sort of, you guys disrupted the U S steel yeah. market with the mini mill concept. Maybe talk about that. And I think that leads us into this history of transformation and disruption and innovation that you guys have always had, but maybe start there. If you don't mind, just give us a little bit of history. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Ha happy to. So it actually goes back to the sixties. Um, we had a brand new CEO in the late sixties and the, the company was a conglomerate at that time. And it, it was not a profitable conglomerate. And he stripped away all the pieces of the company, except a steel joist plant in Florence, South Carolina. And if you don't know what a joist is, if you walk into Home Depot or Walmart and look up and you see the zigzag thing that holds the roof up, that's a joist made out of steel. And he got frustrated that he couldn't get a reliable supply of steel from the big integrated steel makers like U.S. Steel in Bethlehem. So he decided to integrate backwards and he didn't have the capital to enter the traditional steel industry. So he used an innovation um, that others were unable to commercialize and Nucor grabbed it and was able to make it work. And that's the electric arc furnace. And that's where the mini mill comes from. An electric arc furnace is, is what's used to make steel in what we now call a mini mill. And um, we were able to make all of the products that fed the joist plant and that model expanded where you'd have more joist plants, more steel mills, sell the excess steel on the open market. And in the eighties, um, there were a couple other transformative innovations in very different types of steel products. One of them was around a, a continuous slab processor, which allowed us to enter the flat rolled steel markets. These are the big coils of steel that you would make uh, the shells of cars from and all kinds of uh, construction applications. That really allowed us to begin taking a lot of market share from the big integrateds. And we also levered a, a new technology that others were unable to use in making wide flange beams for uh, construction. So um, at that point in the eighties, those innovations really launched us in, into a different category of steel production. And by the time we were in the early two thousands, we had surpassed all of our rivals to become the largest steel company in North America. Wow. Yeah. And it's, uh, I forgot what the name of the book was. There's a book I read when I first heard of Nucor. Um, there's a book about disruption. I don't know if it's, uh, innovators dilemma. I want to say, was that the one? It. Yeah. Clayton Christensen wrote that book. Clay Christensen. Yeah. And he, he talks a lot about Nucor in that book. And, does. um, even when I was getting my uh, master's, I remember studying Nucor. So it's, it's fascinating to now be working with you guys over the years and seeing how you've continued that, that history of, innovation, disruption, um, challenging the status quo, that sort of thing. So maybe fast forward to the journey you're in the midst of right now and maybe give us a little bit of context of what is this current digital transformation that you're on and what triggered it and what, what, uh, you know, what are the component, what are the major components of that? Sure. Sure. And, you know, you, you, you're using the word transformation, Eric, and, um, that's a word that we, we used to use. We don't 
we don't use it so much anymore, especially when it comes to digital. And, and the reason is um, when you look at what's happening to our overall business, our overall business is changing. The story that I just articulated about our history, um, those innovations allowed our organization to have tremendous cost advantages in the marketplace. Those cost advantages led us to build an organizational structure that was really based on a very decentralized regional model where mills ran very, very decentralized. They had their own market carved out. And, you know, probably before 2000, th those mills, if, if the cord was severed between that mill and Charlotte, North Carolina, they, they could keep running just fine. And, and as we got bigger and more sophisticated and began to make more sophisticated products, we, we became a bigger component of the steel supply chain. We began to have uh, overlapping regions, multiple products uh, going to the same customer, far more complex products that, that required a much more sophisticated approach with our customers as well. And by the time you got to 2005, six, seven, eight, our customers were really demanding something different from us. They, they didn't want to work with a collection of, of autonomous mills. They wanted to work with, with the steel producer that was strategic in, in how we would engage them. They, they wanted a supply chain partner. And we didn't have a history in that. We, we didn't really know how to do that. So we, we began down a journey um, to, to really begin transforming ourselves commercially. Um, how is it that we engage in the supply chain in a more strategic way? To provide solutions rather than just commodity products. You know, we, we have a more diverse offering of steel than any other producer in North America. And we also make steel products that go into construction applications that allow for solutions different than what anyone else can provide. So if you're going to take advantage of all of those synergies across your business, you got to integrate in some way. You, you got to create the connections um, to, to take advantage of, of that diversified product offering. The other thing we did is we vertically integrated. We, we, uh, we vertically integrated both upstream and downstream raw materials, and, and we went deeper into downstream products like tube and grew our metal buildings business, things like that. So as the, the business was transforming, it became obvious that we needed a different set of information inside of the company to make decisions. Um, vertical integration always sounds good. It's hard and having good information to make better decisions throughout those vertical chains matters. Um, and as our relationships with our customers became more sophisticated, um, the things they were asking for from us changed and evolved. So when it comes to digital IT business systems, ERPs, the strategy there really ended up following, um, you know, what what the market was asking from us and what our transformation as an organization set up for us to really be able to do with, with our customers and in the marketplace. So we, we really talk about our transformation as being more of a, a business transformation. Digital and IT follows that. And, and we see it as a, as a supporting mechanism, one of many mechanisms to actually enable the business intelligence we need inside or to enable the customer experience that we're trying to create with our customers. Um, those are the drivers, technology um, enables it. So um, it's, uh, it's really been a unifier in some cases of, of a broader strategy. Right.
Right. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that you don't really use the word digital transformation, and you mentioned the the culture. You have a unique culture. You have a strong culture. And I've I've learned the hard way over the years working with you guys. There's certain words that you just you guys just don't like. Uh, consultants is one of them. Organizational change management, the the term, not the concept, but the term right. change management you guys don't like. Centralization. I think I used that word once in a meeting, and it, and I got you got like, an instant vibe off of that. I'm sure. Yeah, nails on a chalkboard. Do not yeah. say the word centralization <laughs> here. No, so, no, one we don't use too much. But I think it's interesting because um, one of the challenges that you see with a lot of organizations that we do not see with Nucor is that a lot of companies don't have a clear vision of what they want to be when they grow up. Whereas you guys, for better or for worse, whether you like it or not, you guys have a very clear vision of who you are and what you're trying to be, where the warts are, what your strengths are. And I haven't really seen that level of alignment and focus uh, from many companies over the years. And I think that's something that has served you well, not just in this journey, but just as a company overall. Would you agree with that? Or does that make it more challenging at times? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that that, that I, why I'm proud to be a part of the company is, is that the folks in our company are, are really dedicated to the success of our company and our customers. There, there's a lot of ownership and, and we're a group of folks who, who like to win. We want our customers to win. Um, and, you know, I, our, I think our leaders are really serving the 27,000 people who, who want success. They feel a, a, obliged to chart a path that people can follow so that we can do it together. In a decentralized company, you know, we have fewer structural mechanisms to tell people, here's how you do your job. So if you don't have a vision, then you, you really don't have an opportunity to harness energy and get people moving in the right direction. And um, I, I would say we, we probably uh, view, um, you know, vision and communication as the mechanisms to harness energy and get people moving together far less than structure, control and, and things like that. We do have incentive systems that, that pay for performance that we think are very important, but we, we would say those really supplement the ownership uh, towards the vision that, that, that our leaders really work towards in the organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. So in this journey you're in now, this business and uh, technology transformation journey you're on now, uh, or business transformation driven by or enabled by technology, I should say. Right. Um, what it, it sounds like, I, I know there's a, a bunch of things you guys are trying to address. I mean, you had grown over the years through acquisition. You wanted to retain a certain amount of decentralization and mm -hmm. uh, independence of those acquisitions. 
but yet provide a more consistent customer experience right. to customers that might be ordering from different or ordering products from different uh, divisions or groups within the, the organization. Um, and I know just having better visibility was something too that you guys were working on as far as getting visibility into what exactly is happening in all these different uh, parts of the business. Um, maybe just explain to us a little bit about what are the major buckets of stuff that are part of this overall journey. Sure. Sure. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll start with our, our steel group, which is the largest part of the organization. We're quite frankly, um, uh, the, the, a lot of the changes occurred. We, we see change across the whole organization. Um, but if you, if you go back to just 2016, I'd have to add it up to be sure, but we had over 30 ERPs across the organization. Um, and we, we are a company that has grown in cases by acquisition. And if you, you do an acquisition, you, you acquire ERPs. And um, uh, if you have different ERPs, that means you have different technology, but you also have different business processes, different business practices. And if you have different business practices, they generate different types of data. And um, you know, if you've got disparate data, it makes it harder to make decisions. So as I talked about some of those things that we were working towards, having business intelligence, intelligence to make better decisions, and also having the people process and technology place to create the, the customer experiences that we want, that number of ERPs was really a representation of the disparity of business processes across the company. It, it represented not just decentralization of technology, but decentralization of process. So. We, we really viewed the technology component hand in hand with putting business processes in place, business systems in place that would create better alignment of behavior to create a common set of data and also to create a common set of behaviors to give our customers a more consistent experience. And that is one of the things we heard over and over from our customers is we want a more consistent experience. We heard over and over from our customers, you, you, you guys have the best people, we love your people. We love working with Nucor folks. We've never heard people say you got the best systems. Um, our people did a great job overcoming the inconsistencies and the lack of sophistication of our systems. They did a great job overcoming that. But to, to be world class and customer experience and, and to really be the partners that we want to be uh, with many of our customers, that, that, that had to change. So there is a major ERP overhaul going across the entire steelmaking group. We've got 30 steel mills. We've got half of them integrated onto Oracle. Part of that is, is creating a more uniform platform of level three manufacturing systems uh, across our shop floors. Um, so that part of our business is, is roughly a $20 billion chunk of business that's getting an entire um, business system and manufacturing system overhaul. Um, uh, Sushma Walker, who I work real closely with, who might might be watching right now, is leading that effort. And um, you know, the, I think she would say that the the biggest challenge to that is is the alignment of the processes, not not the technology. Um, so that that ERP platform creates better consistency in our business systems. We we've had a major data transformation effort that that we've been going through, and uh, you know, if you've got you know, 30 ERPs just in the, the steel mills that you start with, that's 30 different sets of data um, to work with. We didn't have time to wait for a unified ERP 
before we could start leveraging BI and digital solutions. So we built a data platform that actually allowed all of our ERPs to, to um, send information to Charlotte um, and create a commonized platform that actually allowed us to, to have a consistent BI uh, platform. And then it also allowed us to have a, a much more consistent interface with, with our customers. So that's really probably the, you know, the, the piece that I think really began to make sense in the company. If you're creating consistency with business systems and manufacturing systems, you're harnessing the data. Well, if you don't do anything with that, then you've just put in new systems. Well, we actually want to consume that information differently, create more transparency so that people can see that information and make better decisions. Uh, all the way through our vertical chains and how we take care of our customers. And we've been able to do a completely different set of, uh, of things with our customers. We, we can do things now with that data platform to create a much more unified experience across the diversity of products we offer. So if you can't provide a more consistent experience and make it easier for people to consume your diversity of offering, then what's the value of the diversity? It's, it's just as easy to get it in other places. So that whole chain of events from business system, level three data platform to internal BI and the deliverables to the customers has really created a, an opportunity for us to, to have a, a very integrated platform of people, process and technology. And as, right. as I say it, you know, it, it, it sounds awesome and it, we're very happy with how it's going. Um, doing all of those things at the same time is is really challenging. It's yeah. really challenging, especially at a time where you know we were talking right before we started uh, filming this that uh, demand for steel right now is through the roof. So your operations now, in parallel, are taking off and blowing up, and you know testing your capacity and all that good stuff. And at the same time, you're trying to continue this journey has it has this uh project or this overall stream of, of the business and technology journey has that been disrupted at all by the the fact that your business is taken off again um you know covid made it challenging we've had some minor delays but overall things have kept moving um you know and when covid occurred many of our end markets basically stopped the auto plants stopped construction stopped um, and our demand plummeted. And it's fascinating to watch what happens to a two month disruption in, in your end markets. The supply chains don't just magically start back up. So uh, we're rushing to catch up with, with those lags in the supply chain and we are exceptionally busy. And it is it does create challenges. As I've said it, I've said the term several times, people process and technology. And if our folks are, are running very hard just to keep up with the basic demands of the current state of the business, there's, there's less time, there's less energy to allocate to the changes. Mm -hmm. And for the people on this call, and I know you know it as well as anyone, when you're changing your business systems, when you're putting in a new ERP, when you're changing how you interface with your customers, that's, that's not light work, that's heavy work. And it, it can be frustrating at times. It's taxing on people as, as they learn new processes. And um, it, it, it is challenging. I was just sitting with our digital solutions team the other day and said, 
tell me what you guys are feeling right now. How, how does this look and feel across the company? And, and they talked about the fact that our sales teams, our inside sales teams do such a great job of servicing our customers. I said, they're so busy. You know, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to catch up uh, with their pace of work right now. So uh, we're making it work and we're largely staying on, on, on target. Um, but we got a lot of people working hard to do it, working a lot of hours. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So w- when you look at this project so far, this, this journey that, that you're on, which it, in some ways is a, you know, I hate to call it a project because it's almost like an ongoing continuous journey that you guys have uh, embarked on here. But when you think about this journey, what, what have some of the biggest challenges been so far that you've run into? Yeah, well, I think you 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 kind of hit on it earlier, Eric. Um, you know, for us uh, in our culture, the idea that that people are owners of their of their jobs, they they take personal responsibility for for their work and the output of their work. And um, you know, I, I feel really lucky and blessed to work in this company. Our, our biggest challenge is oftentimes people are fighting for ownership. You know. Um, don't take that from me. That's mine. I want to make that work. That's my team's responsibility. So um, when you're putting in these new systems and these new processes, there are occasions, well, there's many occasions where uh, someone's level of ownership of, of that process is diminished. Um, a single plant ERP that's been homegrown that local IT team can pull all the levers and push all the buttons to make as many custom configurations, changes, systems changes that they want to make. They can customize it. The the sales team, uh, whether it's a level three system, an operator comes down and says, "I, I want this tweak. I want this change. They can make it. Well, when you're putting a more unified ERP across a set of businesses to get those economies of scale and those synergies, it, it's not as it's not that simple, and um, you know I think that's the real that's the biggest challenge for us. How how do we help? Um, or how do we move this forward in a way that that optimizes ownership of a broader system um, to where people feel as engaged as they always have in the organization that they can show up and make a difference, and um, you know. I think the way we've gone at that is is continuous education and communication around the vision and what we're working to accomplish around it. And that's helpful. It's not a perfect silver bullet because if you show up and and you work a 10, 11, 12 hour day and and you're working long hours because you're changing what you do and you may not have as much control over it, you might be bought into the vision. It's still frustrating. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, that we care about that um, and we worry about that and, and we, we talk about that. And that's, that's a constant balance and challenge that, that uh, we, we deal with every day, every day, regardless of the part of that chain, ERP, level three, data, BI, digital solutions for our customers, every, every part of that chain we feel that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to, come to some other questions I have for you here in a second, but in the meantime, a uh, uh, couple of comments and questions that have come from the audience here on the different uh, streams we have. Uh, over on, uh, starting here on Crowdcast, uh, just a couple comments uh, from Sam Graham. Uh, thanks for joining again today, Sam. 
Um, his comment is great to hear the computer systems are about people and not, not technology. So I think it's, you know, you're one of the few people that I haven't had to prompt or convince that that is the case. You, know, you believe that you might believe that even more than I do just based on your, your background and your experience right now. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think that's something that we we've always believed and and we believe it. We believe it more today with, with what we've gone through. And, you know, the thing that I see is if, if people want to make technology work, they'll figure out how to make it work. If they don't want to make it work or they're not interested in it, it's not going to work very well. Yeah. So, um, you know, attaching that technology to, to an outcome that, that matters to the organization and the people doing it really seems to matter a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. So here's a, a question from, from Roy over on LinkedIn. Uh, and his comment is that um, his organization is about enabling digital transformation at scale, even for small and mid-sized companies. The challenge today is the cost of adoption. It's too difficult for most to cross the chasm. What percentage of your projects fail or fail to succeed to scale across your enterprise? So are there, I guess just thinking about scale, maybe that's an interesting thread given that you, the comment we had earlier, the discussion we had earlier about how you're this big, massive company, but you don't act like one in some ways and you try to act like, uh, you know, a decentralized company for lack of a better word. Um, are the, do you have trouble scaling uh, some of these efforts and some of these projects given that, that sort of, in some ways that's a competing uh, yeah. priority there. So what, how do, how do you guys handle scale versus that decentralization? Well, we, we do. And, and fortunately, you know, I, I can say that on the ERP front, uh, we've not experienced failures. When we've decided to put in an ERP and take it live, we've done that. And we've been able to do that without disrupting our business. So in that, in that case, um, you know, we've largely been able to do what we initially set out to do. Where, where I've seen us um, have some failures and, and have to learn from them is, is really on the data platform, how quickly we can harness data and how quickly we can use it. The BI side of it to me has been also very challenging. Um, a need may pop up in the organization to say, well, we, we want this type of information to create this type of visibility. Okay. Well, you don't snap your fingers and get that instantly. The question becomes, you know, where do you stand that up? Do you stand that up across the enterprise so that it's uniform for everyone to see in a common way? And if you do that, that's that's likely going to slow you down. That's more data you got to put under control, and that's more data that you have to stand up in a, in a BI platform. And whether it's BI or whether it's trying trying to harness, um, you know, uh, buckets of data for our customers. There, there are times where we have uh, misjudged at what level of the organization we should be doing that at. Mm -hmm. I think initially our, our initial BI efforts were probably overly ambitious. We tried to scale too broad, too fast, and we were too slow. Um, what we stood up was spectacular and the organization loved it. Um, but you know, when you give somebody something they like, they want more of it. And um, we're learning from that now and recognizing that that we can deploy things in smaller instances at different levels of the organization more quickly. 
and we we don't have the full answer on that that's another thing that we're debating on a daily basis where, where does that sit who should own that how much consistency do we need how fast does that need to iterate and change and um I was talking to someone the other day and they said the challenge with BI and data is you, you're, you're always a step behind. It doesn't seem like you can ever really meet, um, you know, the, the demands that you face. And I, I think in some regards that's that that's true. Um, being as close to it as you can be matters. So um, that's where I think and in, in from a customer standpoint, you know, uh, we've we've got, you know, thousands of customers and, um, you know, how, how do you sort through what's needed, what's wanted, where there's most value with your partners? We've missed in terms of really fully understanding in some cases where we can add the most value with our partnerships with our customers. And we've put a lot of work in some things that, that turned out to be okay. And, and after we did it, we were like, wow, I, I don't know that that's adding a whole lot of value. So, um, you know, when you talk about scaling stuff, you know, if you talk about scaling technology, all right, good. Scaling solutions, especially with your customers, to me is a better way to look at that. We've scaled some technology and processes that did not lead to a scaling of solutions. And, um, you know, you, you, we've learned from that. You know, you put all this work into something and you say, oh, that, did, that didn't get us what we wanted to. Um, that that changes how we approach things. Is that helpful? Yeah, it helps me. And uh, uh, Roy, if the, if you have follow up questions on that question, let me know. But I, I think that that's a it's a great question and a great response because it it shows a couple things. One is you know how you how you balance sometimes competing priorities, and this is just one example that we're talking about here. But you also bring up a good point, which is that there is no one size fits all answer, even within the same organization. We always say that to our clients, like, hey, what worked for Nucor isn't necessarily gonna work for you over here. You've got to sort of tailor that, but even within Nucor, different work groups, different parts of the organization, different levels are gonna have different needs. And, uh, you know, you, you, you uh, handle that accordingly. One right. thing I've noticed about your team in general, I'd say is that it's it's a very fascinating phenomenon that, that I, I don't know if you observe it being part of it, but being outside looking in, I'm always fascinated by how fast you guys are able to, at least those of you at the executive and mid management levels are able to go from the strategic way of thinking and just go straight down into the details and then bounce back up to strategic thinking. And you guys do a good job, whereas most organizations are stuck or most people, a lot of people are stuck on mm -hmm. one or the other. They're either too high level or they're too far in the weeds and they don't know how to pivot or adjust. And you guys seem to know how to, when you need to micromanage and when you need to roll up your sleeves and when you need to back up and look at the strategic aspects of a, of a project, which I find fascinating. Well, I think, I think some of that, Eric, is um, inherent in, in our structure. So, um, you know, as we talked about the history of the company and um, I talked about the business, um, you know, our structure is, is very, very different. I think I'd have to look. I think we're like 120 on the Fortune 500 that might have moved up or down. I don't. I don't remember. Um, but here in Charlotte, at our corporate office, we have, we have about 140 people, and there's 27,000 of us around the company. So it's a really, really small corporate office. Yeah, that's really. We, it, it is, and we really only have four levels of management in in the company. You got supervisors, managers, uh, VPGMs, and EVPs. We only have seven of those and a 
and a CEO. Um, it's a very, very lean organization. And it's interesting, it, our, our first CEO or CFO used to hand out this book. It's called Parkinson's Law. You can't even get it, get it digitally. And by the shape of this book, you can tell. And it basically talks about, um, in, in some regards, how lean structure forces um, you to focus on the right things, but it also keeps the organization from sprawling in ways that keep people um, from being connected from strategy to execution. And I see that um, there's pros and cons to that. I think there's times where um, senior level leaders do spend more time in, in tactics than what might be optimal. Course, there's benefit in that and staying connected and understanding how strategy moves to execution. I don't know that we got it balanced perfectly, um, but I do think our senior leaders stay more closely attached to execution than what you would see in other organizations. Yeah. I get pulled into, if I'm chatting with uh, heads of IT and other companies, the level of granularity that I get pulled into is very different than what they get pulled into. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think one of the uh, benefits of, of that approach and that mindset and that structure that you have as it relates to some of the ERP projects you're going through and BI and you know this, this overall transformation is that you guys have this um, degree of ownership, which you were talking about a minute ago as well. You have a degree of ownership that is extremely rare and you tend to, you know, everyone says the, the, the old Ronald Reagan term, trust but verify. You guys have a, it's, it's like trust, but verify on steroids. Like, you, you know, when to verify and you know, when to trust, and you, you just have this sixth sense almost as an organization. And, and one example that uh, comes to mind is, you know, I know uh, working with Sushma on, on the ERP project, you guys have a pretty uh, healthy support from outside consultants, but you guys have been very active in sort of rationalizing the use of outside consultants. And, and you, you don't just, take advice from outsiders or from anyone for that matter, blindly, you, you kind of, you have to see it, you have to believe it, you have to feel it, experience it, all that stuff. And so I think it's a combination of that ownership, the flat structure, your culture. And I think that all translates into some good lessons for people going through transformations where you have to know, you know first of all, you have to recognize that it's your project, it's your transformation. It's not the consultants, it's not the technology providers, it's not anyone's but, but yours. And you guys are really good at that. And so I don't know if you have any advice for people, you know, how do you sort of just sort of overhauling your culture and becoming more like Nucor, which would take decades and it took you guys decades to get to where you are. What, what sort of tidbits of advice could you give to an organization where maybe they are not, that's not an inherent part of their culture organization, but maybe they could apply some lessons to their, to their transformations. So I, I think, you know, one of the things that, that is very true in Nucor is, is that, um, you know, f folks are, are expected to, to be owners of their jobs. And, and we hire folks that I, I think in general are, are very personally responsible people. And if, if you ask someone to be responsible for, for something, you, you have to give them the freedom and in, in, in the, the leeway and the bandwidth to take ownership. And, you know, I've, I've worked in other organizations and seen companies, um, that, that want to hold people accountable. And that person doesn't really have all of the levers and freedom um, to, 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 to be fully responsible for the outcome. 
So, um, you know, I, I see I see a question on the screen that Karen wrote. How do you help people deal with the loss of, of what they've been doing that gives them a sense of their contributions? I, that's an awesome question. I, I hope we're doing, you know, we're, we really work at this. Um, we are a results driven organization. Results matter. And we're making these changes to get better results. And if we help people see that those changes are leading to better results, that matters. A part of that is how we get paid. Every human in this company gets paid for performance. Everyone is on an incentive system and it's not an individual incentive system, it's based on the team. So you rise and fall with your team. We've talked for years about sharing the gain and sharing the pain. And, um, you know, I, if, if your boss allows you to have the responsibility, if the organizational structure allows you to have the responsibility and you yourself and your team can benefit from being successful with that responsibility, if you hire the right people, they will take ownership and they'll fight for the ownership. So, um, you know, I, I, again, I, I think the folks, uh, in the company today, we're, we're fortunate benefactors of how the company was set up. You know, um, we inherited it from Ken Iverson and the people who built built the company, and and they did build the, the organizational structure around disruptive innovation, and that structure was just as innovative as the technology that made the steel, and we're we're lucky to have received that, and um, we're just doing our best not to mess it up and keep it going. I think. All right. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully make it even better and just keep building on what, what they've done. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. And one, one example that I hope you don't mind me sharing is, is uh, just building on uh, the story with, with, with Sushma and you on, on the transformation and, and the outside consultants. I remember there was a point uh, not too long ago in the project where um, the run rate, you know, the monthly run rate had reached a certain level and the project was extending and you guys sort of called an audible or a timeout and said, hey, hold on, let's rethink this plan. And you, you guys took that on yourself and said, here's how we're going to use the consultants. Here's how we're going to recast the plan. And, and that, you know, quite frankly, um, not many organizations we work with have the guts for like, I guess I'll use the word guts as right. it was. Really, uh, not many people have the guts to, to take that bold of a stance and, to, and back to the ownership and, uh, you know, just the, um, yeah, just the ownership of that. I, I found that very fascinating as well. Yeah, and I think that fits into some of what I just shared, you know, it's, it's, it's about the results. Um, if you're putting in business systems and level threes across your facilities, you're, you're impacting their operations. We, yeah. not only does that need to get done well, you're spending money as you do it. Um, 
putting in ERPs in and of themselves don't generate profits. We're, we're consuming the profits of the company as we do it. Um, and the people doing that get paid based on the profitability of the businesses they're serving. They want to see those businesses run. So I think there's just a natural pull in the company towards results. Um, when you're paid on the results, that scorecard shows up. You know, if you're paid every two weeks or every month, you know, there's a scorecard in your paycheck and, and that, that matters. Yeah. The other thing about the, the pay is if, if you have your hands in each other's pockets, if what I do impacts how you get paid, you're, you're more inclined to, to work more closely with that person. Um, feedback becomes more transparent. Your willingness to help that person be successful, I think, I think matters. Um, I think it pulls people together. Um, and, uh, uh, pe people are folks we hire are competitive. They, they, they want to be successful and they're willing to help each other be successful. Yeah, absolutely. We're getting, uh, some questions over here on LinkedIn. So maybe I'll pick a couple of them here. Um, how about this? This is a good one. How, how can we keep up with project timelines if stakeholders are not responding on time? And this is by uh, Shandan. I think I hope I pronounced that right over on, on LinkedIn. So okay. Project timelines of stakeholders aren't responding on time. Do you ever have that issue there at Nucor? Um, you know, uh, we we have a very organized project management system. We actually brought in some partners to, to help us with that, and we we do use in in our all of our IT and digital uh, change efforts. We we do use a, a third party project manager, and the reason why we use a third party is you know if 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 the person running the project owns some portion of it, it's, it's a bit like the, the fox guard in the hen house. We actually were intentional in that we wanted an, uh, a nonpartisan, unbiased person who, who did not have a stake in some part of the deliverable to, to help us see the project. And we've got some great partners that help us do that. Um, whether it's ERP level three data digital, um, we have the same format and framework for managing projects. They do sit in big portfolios and we have a natural rhythm for how we examine the project. And whether it's the first week of the project or the 50th week, um, every week we have a stand-up call that takes no more than 30 minutes where all of the stakeholders get visibility into everything that's going on in that project. And if there's a delay in one place, everybody sees it. And if you're delayed, you, you account for it. And this is not a shaming exercise. This is not a blaming exercise. Um, it's a group accountability thing uh, to figure out what's working, what's not, and to create visibility across the team. So, you know, I, I just, I don't, I don't see instances in Nucor where, where people are, are, are just not doing their jobs. I see instances where components of projects delay, oftentimes for really good reasons. Sometimes it's confusion, sometimes it's misalignment. Um, but if you look at it on a weekly basis, you can ask the questions and help the team figure it out. So I'm not sure that's a great answer. I, I would say that the way we deal with that is, is really through transparency and frequency. You know, we're, we're frequently digging into the depths of every project and it's expected every everyone participates in that. And we really do have a good spirit around it. It's not. It's not coming together to point fingers. It's 
it's about the team operating together. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. Um, yeah. And that, and I think it's, it's, it's probably a little bit hard for you to answer because you've set up such a, or the organization is set up for, to mitigate that, that risk that's, that the, uh, that the author of that question is asking there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to, here's a, a question from uh, Sam Graham over on Crowdcast here. Um, he said that given that uh, Nucor doesn't like consultants, why did they chose to work with third stage? And, and uh, oh, wow. it's a loaded question, but maybe just to broaden a little bit, make it a little less uh, commercial yeah. uh, or less of a sales pitch for third stage. How do you guys just in general, how do you, because you are, I mean, I think you would agree with this. You're, you're fairly picky about the types of partners you work with and people outside of Newcore that are going to advise you. How do you, how do you balance that? I mean, how do you recognize the need for outside help? How do you, uh, how do you find the right fit for a culture that that that's that strong that really doesn't like consultants? I mean, how do you, how do you balance that? I think, I think to say we don't like consultants might be a little strong. Um, yeah, that's a, a generalization. Of course. We're, we are, we are really picky and, uh, we're really picky because we, we have a, a very strong culture. Um, our organizational structure and the way our business runs is, we think, fairly different from other companies. So one of the things that is just immediately off-putting to us is when somebody says, I've, I've worked with many companies like yours, and their pitch is, I understand your problem, I can solve it. And, and um whether you're a consultant approaching us or whether you're a new core person approaching another new core person, mm. we would much prefer someone ask questions and understand the situation, even if they understand it. If you don't ask questions, you're not sending the right message to the person you're dealing with. Um, so I see a lot of consultants who, who don't approach the clients in, in a learning fashion. Um, and then the other thing that's challenging to us is frequently consultants are, are selling something beyond um, guidance and knowledge. There's there's something else that they're selling. And, and I think, Eric, that's why our organizations have gotten along so well for so long. Um, you know, you guys have done a great job of listening, learning, getting to know our people and how we operate. And then we're always confident you're, you're not trying to sell us something. You're, you're trying to help us make better decisions. And uh, I think you've always recognized we, we, we accept the ownership of the decisions. We want you to push on us, um, debate with us, uh, hold the mirror up to us. And you, you've been willing to, to give us tough feedback when we've needed it. Um, and uh, we, we want that, um, but we want to own the decision. Yeah. And that, I think that's the key right there. As long as you guys are owning it, Obviously, you're looking for cultural fit. The types of partners, whether it's us or anyone else, that that fits, you know, your your culture and that aligns with that. I think that's important. Right. A lot of people don't think about that because it's intangible. You know, it's hard. You have to kind of feel it. It's not a it's not a science by any means. Right, right. And concepts are good. You pay consultants for concepts, but you want folks who can partner with you and help you do things too, and think through execution, and that matters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're up at the top of the hour. So I might just ask you one more question here from the audience. If you don't mind off of LinkedIn, I'll pick one off here. Um, there's a couple of comments here, you know, well said ownership is key to any project success. Balancing ownership with outsourcing is difficult at best. Um, let's see. 
Okay, here's here's one, and, and again, this this might be a little bit difficult for you to ask because it's so baked into your organization and the DNA of, of Nucor. But what is the best way to motivate stakeholders or subject matter experts to take ownership during the course of an ERP implementation? And maybe from your perspective, if you could think about it from the context of you've still got a business to run, your business is busting at the seams at the moment, and has you know obviously it ebbs and flows as as time goes on, and as you're doing this transformation in parallel. So how do you keep people focused on both, both things? Yeah. I, you know, I, I would love for someone else to answer that question <laughs> and give us <laughs> an answer because it's, it's hard. It, it is really hard. Um, and I'm, I'll be a broken record on this. Um, it really comes back to the ownership piece. I, I do think we are more willing to have lengthier, deeper conversations um, to, to get to ownership, um, you know, uh, I, I think we're, we're, we are willing to be questioned a lot. We're willing to be challenged a lot um, at all levels of the organization. And I think, you know, if, if people feel comfortable that they can challenge and push, they're, they're willing to, to uh, listen uh, in return. And I think having that dialogue open where people feel like they can be heard, even if it doesn't land how they want, then they're, they're, they're more willing um, to, to um, follow. The other thing that I think we've got going for us today is we, we do have successes um, uh, and people do have more confidence in, in how things are going. And we're able to not just on process implementation, but results in the marketplace um, so we can actually do this stuff. We can actually get, get results and that, that is helpful, but it, it for, for us, it is, what do we do, um, for folks to, to assume the ownership, um, and to grab it. And, um, yeah, so, some days we're good with that and some days we, we, we struggle with it. Yeah. 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 That's a, it's, it's not an easy answer by any means or an easy trade-off for sure. No. No. So maybe just to wrap up, you know, for, for the audience here today, what um, if you had to summarize, you know, think back to your your days back in 2016, back when you're so much younger and more naive, you know, five years ago. And uh, what, what were the what are the things you wish you knew then um, that, you know, now or if you want to think of it this way, what sort of advice might you give to someone who's about to start in a similar type of journey? What, what are some of the key takeaways? you? you yeah. Um, um, I don't, the things, you know, everyone's path is so different. Um, you know, I knew our, our company so well when I took the job, that, that position in digital, I, I had relationships across the organization. I worked in all of the businesses. Um, I, I understood a lot about the, the organization. Um, so that, that piece of it was, was comfortable for me. Um, I would have liked to have understood the technology better out of the gate um, because one thing I've learned is, is you know, is if, if you have put your blood, sweat and tears into the technology, it's difficult to change. And we, we can all appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know anything about the technology, it, it takes longer to understand what, what might need to change, what might not need to change. It's difficult to understand the ecosystem of people processing technology. And technology was my weakness to understand that ecosystem. 
And there, there were times I probably didn't challenge hard enough because I didn't know better. Um, uh, there's times I probably accepted answers when I, I, I could have asked more questions and I didn't even know what to ask. I would have had no idea what to have even asked. Um, so I think where I would take that is I, I would be more intentional to find the weakness that you have and find partners that can really help you on that weakness. And I don't know that I did that as well as I could to, to find people that could really help me. Um, you know, you, you and your organization uh, did that in, in some regards along our journey. Um, took, took, took us what took me a while to, to get there. Um, so, you know, if you're strong in technology and you don't know the organization as well, find the people that can help you navigate that quicker. <clears throat> but I would tell you, be intentional to understand your weakness in terms of people processing technology and attack it with relationships and a network that can help you address that weakness. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's great advice. And, and, you know, just recognizing the breadth of skills and capabilities that are going to be required to make the project successful and then recognizing where your weaknesses are and trying to find people that can fill in some of those gaps. I think that's a, it's a good way to look at it and try and understand what you don't know. I mean, I know, you know, that's, that sounds like mm -hmm. the hard part and it's, I, it makes sense. It's the hard part for a lot of us to know, even to know enough to ask the right questions. If you don't have a baseline level, uh, that can be difficult. So just educating yourself and taking the initiative to learn as much as you can about the stuff right. before you start, it, it can be very helpful as well. I, I remember sitting in many meetings and saying, I, I don't even know what question to ask right now. Can someone give me an idea of what I should ask? And that actually worked okay. Um, but that's an uncomfortable feeling. <laughs> right, at the time, especially, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thank thank you so much for being here, Dan. Really appreciate it. I always, uh, like I said, I always I always pick up little nuggets of new stuff. Uh, even when I ask the same questions, I always pick up new stuff from you. So I really appreciate uh, having you on the show. Appreciate having you as a client. I, I love learning from people like you and like your team in Newcore, and um, just appreciate all the lessons you've shared here today. I appreciate you having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks very much for being here today, Dan. Great conversation. Really appreciate you being here, and it it's actually stimulated a number of follow-on questions and discussion points that uh, Parisa and I will get to here in just a second. But before then, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more on Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Parisa Noble and had a really interesting conversation right before the break with with Dan Krug, who is 
as I mentioned before, is one of my favorite people to talk to and one of, honestly, one of my favorite clients that I've ever worked with in my career, just in terms of, um, you know, his personality and the, the way he operates. And I really like that organization. That, that company is a very cool company and very, very different, you know, in, in a good way. Um, so what, what were some of your observations, though? Uh, you know, not having been as close to Nucor over the years like I have, you might have a, a different opinion or a unique perspective on some of the things he, he talked about. Yeah, I think you said it very different in a good way. I mean, I just love how he, he was so strong in his stance and his experience in the transformation that it was almost like you guys were a team in talking about it, you know? So I definitely can respect that. And another thing that stood out to me is that they're so selective about their vocabulary. How how cool is that in building their their culture and and, you know, what words we use in the in this process and what we don't like change management is a no transformation don't say it <laughs> right. we don't use the term consultants i think that was that was powerful and that is a good example for just how strong and powerful our words can be uh it carries a lot of weight so i i liked that but besides that I love that he, you know, he kind of gave the history of Nucor and how they started off as just, you know, they created a commodity steel. And as they went on, they realized there's a need for them to become a supply chain partner. And that's kind of how this transformation, hopefully I can use that word in the podcast, right. <laughs> came about, um, is they needed to, you know, consolidate all of their different ERP systems from, it sounded like they had acquired a handful of other um, smaller companies and that's why they had 30 different ERP systems. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They've okay. acquired a lot of, a lot of different companies. Yeah. So, I mean, he said it best, it's, it's different business processes, different data, and it makes it hard to make decisions. So they're going through this major overhaul and he said it was a $20 billion chunk of the business that's getting a full system overhaul. So I mean, what came to my mind is, you know, when you have a tablecloth on a fully set table and you have to rip it out without making all the glasses fall over. This I've is never done it successfully, but <laughs> <laughs> me I either. I think I would definitely break a lot of, of dishware, but this is what I'm thinking. I mean, they have so many, uh, you know, processes that are reliant on these different ERP systems and to do a complete overhaul of a $20 billion chunk of the business seems like you're kind of trying to take that tablecloth from underneath the dishware without, you know, disrupting it at all. So I guess, how do you do that without halting processes and procedures? How do you kind of, you know, help with that overlap and make sure that things are still, you know, taken away without any inter interruption when you're putting in this new system? That's a tough challenge. I mean, for every organization, especially, you know, smaller and mid-sized organizations where they are super lean and just don't have a, a lot of people on the bench waiting for a, you know, a big massive project like this to start. And, you know, as we talked about in that interview, uh, Nucor is a really lean organization for as big as they are. They, I forgot what the exact number he said. It was the, the corporate staff, but it was a really small number uh, of people that work at the, at the headquarters. And so they're, they're pretty lean and a lot of, most organizations are fairly lean. So you, you don't have a lot of capacity to just throw in a big project like this. So you end up, you know, making some choices. You could either slow down, you know, which is usually what most organizations do. Um, you could rely more on consultants, which isn't necessarily a good answer, which may sound ironic coming from a consultant, but it, it just isn't a good idea to, 
depend too much on on consultants. You you want that balance, right? You want that outside expertise, but you have to own it and you know take possession of this project and you know get people's you know, involvement and all that good stuff. And that just takes time. So you know, knowing that the most common answer is to slow down the project. And when I say slow down, that's probably a misleading term. You're not really slowing down. You're just going at a pace that was the realistic pace to begin with. The problem is, is in these sorts of projects, you get software vendors and sales reps who are overly, you know, zealous about how fast they think you can deploy their technology, which doesn't consider the fact that, you know, you have these capacity bottlenecks like you're, you're uh, suggesting here. So it's, I say slow down, but really it's getting a realistic view of what the timeline is going to be to begin with. If you do that right, then you're not slowing down. You're just going at the pace that makes sense for you. So um, that's probably the best way. I mean, you have to think of it as more of a slow burn or slower burn than you might want. And that's hard for a lot of companies to swallow because a lot of them have some sort of burning platform for change. You know, they, they've, they've grown so much and the system they're on is about to break and or they have a uh, old legacy system that's being sunset and is no longer going to be supported. So they have a certain amount of time that they have to get off that old system, get onto a new one. So there are cases where you're under these time pressures that can make it very difficult. Um, but if you don't have those time pressures, you know, to the extent you can, you want to make sure you have the right tempo, the right pace, and that you're you know, doing those the right way. So I'd say that's probably the best way is just to make sure you 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 can get get the right pace. And then, of course, if you can backfill resources and bring on additional resources to fill in the day-to-day jobs to replace the time that people are now going to devote to this project, uh, that helps as well. Right. That makes sense. I mean, if you take your time, you're often going to do it right the first time rather than have to backtrack and and make up for issues along the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that you mentioned was bring in more consultants. So let's talk about this because he had, I mean, it sounds like Nucor has a very interesting perspective on, on consultants. Who do they work with? They have high standards. They're, um, you know, not just working with anybody. They're being, they, he used the term competitive. Everyone they work with is very competitive. So, I mean, that's a plus. I, he brought something up that I had not heard of before. And that's, again, I'm on the marketing side for our listening listeners, right? This is my first time hearing of bringing in a third party project manager. So how common is this? Is this something that, um, you see a lot of organization organizations do in a transformation? Uh, a, f- a fair amount, um, but not the way they have. I mean, they brought in, I think a lot of times people conflate project manager with the technical or system integrator project lead. And those are two different roles. Um, you know, if if a system integrator is selling you their services, they're going to say, hey, we've got a project manager, you don't need one. Or if you, you know, if, if you have one internally, you know, they're going to work side by side with our project manager. But system integrators and vendors don't really provide a project management function. They provide a, I would consider it a work stream lead function. So yes, they're managing all the moving parts of one, one piece of the entire project. So it's not really, I'd, I'd say it's more of a project lead. And then you need sort of a program manager over the whole thing. And that's what he's talking about is the, you know, the program management over the whole thing. Now the the thing that he didn't really get into that's, that's super interesting about that piece of it, the, the third party project management function is that it was, it's still the new core people that are providing the, the thought leadership and the strategy and the direction. It's just that he, they use project managers to help figure out how to execute and help track the execution of that. That makes sense. So it's not, 
you know, a lot of times people think, well, I'm going to hire a project manager. They're going to come in and just tell me how I should run this and give me a plan and I'll bless it and they'll go run with it. It's, this is different. This is much more collaborative where they're setting the vision. They're setting the tempo. They're saying, Hey, it's a seven year project and here's how we're going to phase it. And here's how it's going to look now help us put together that plan that reflects that and track it and make sure we're on, on track and identifying the risks and all that good stuff. So I'd say yes, but the way they use their outside project management and consultants in general is a lot different than most, most organizations I've seen. Interesting. And I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was an in-house project manager might be helpful in the sense that they know everybody that's on the project internal to the company. They'll know the resources a bit better than maybe a third party would, but it sounds like the collaborative element is the key to the puzzle is if you're working collaboratively hand in hand, um, it can help streamline is what it sounds like. Yeah. Would you say there's pros and cons to bringing on a third party versus keeping an in-house project manager? And what would those be? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I, I don't think it's necessarily an either or decision. It's just a lot of times it's sort of like a scale, you know, where, where's the balance going to be in our use of outside project management versus internal. I think you need both. I mean, you have to have, in my opinion, someone in-house that is sort of the the face of the project, the, the lead, the internal lead, because ultimately you need someone that can identify what internal resources might be needed or if, if something's getting stuck internally, you know, as far as making progress or getting deliverables. An outside consultant or project manager is not going to help effectively with that. I mean, you need someone internally that can own that and hold people accountable and all that stuff. The outside consultants are there to provide the methodologies and the guidance and the advice that you can then go execute. And, you know, it's more of a collaborative approach. So I think, you know, there's a, I'd say the trade-off of the pros and cons are the getting too far to one extreme or the other. If you get too far down the extreme of um, using consultants and sort of outsourcing the whole thing, then you lost that ownership. You don't, um, you don't have as much uh, understanding of the project and the nuances of it. And you therefore become more dependent on those consultants. So it's, it's harder to get rid of them, to be honest. So, so uh, and you want to get rid of the consultants again, coming from a consultant, it may sound odd saying, but you, you don't want your consultants there forever. You want to, you want them to come in do the project and, and get out. That's the whole point of, of having that variable cost uh, in that uh, structure. Um, and then on the flip side, if you, if you depend too much on your internal staff and not enough on outside help, chances are, you're just going to, go back to the way you've always done things and you're sort of operating in an echo chamber of, of the way things have always been. And it's a lot harder to change. So, and not to mention that most internal people, even if you've been through a project or two in the past like this, chances are you don't have the level of depth of expertise that an outside expert or expert uh, team might have. So it's more a matter of just finding that right balance for you, but it should be balanced somewhere in the middle where you're getting the best of both worlds. Okay. That makes sense. So then that takes me to my next question. They are, like we said, they're very selective in the consultants and probably the project managers that they bring in anybody third party to them. So for other companies that are wanting to kind of raise those standards and follow suit to make sure that they're only working with the best of the best, what are the characteristics that, that companies and organizations should be looking for when they start pursuing an external consultant? Yeah, maybe I'll answer that through the lens of what I, how I understand Nucor to, to vet out consultants. And I think, by the way, and I don't just say this because they're a client of ours and they chose us as one of the you know lucky few that gets to be a consultant for them, but I think they are highly effective at, at vetting out 
and using consultants selectively, even for, even with us. I mean, most clients that we work with um, would use us, I'd say more, you know, maybe depend on us more, whereas they're, they're the opposite. And they say, you know, we've got a very specific need. It's right here in this box. And that's where we want you to help. And, you know, a lot of consultants have a tendency to kind of broaden the scope or broaden their reach within an organization. And they don't really, they don't, I don't know if it's conscious or not, but they just don't, it just doesn't happen there. They have a very specific need and they want you to fit in that, in that role. Um, so I, I think the, uh, so where I was going with that though, is just really being deliberate about how you use consultants. I think too often people don't know enough um, about these sorts of projects and they just defer to whatever the system integrator or the consultants tell them. So if, you know, if I were to come to you and say, okay, Parisa, you're going to need 50 of my full people full-time on this project. You may not know enough to a ask the question of well, why 50, why not 30 or 10 or, you know, why, why so many, why do we have to spend that much? And I could, I could blow, you know, smoke and mirrors and say, well, it's because of the complexity of the technology and you wouldn't understand and we need a full-time person to do this, another one to do that. And you don't know enough to challenge it, but they, they're the types though, they, they roll up their sleeves and they get into the details and they do challenge it. They'll say, wait, are we sure this doesn't make sense to us? This does, doesn't you know fit. So I think that's part of it. The other part of it is just getting past all the fluff that consultants tend to have. I think that's a, that's a, I think a, you know, dark side of consulting is they, there's just a lot of fluff, a lot of, a lot of really pretty PowerPoint presentations that take hours and hours and weeks and months to create. And, um, so, you know, I came from the big consulting firm environment where I was part of that machine where I spent, I don't know how many hours I spent just perfecting and fine tuning these slides that we were going to give to a, an executive presentation. And you just, at the end of the day, wonder, is that really adding value? I mean, yes, you need to be a good communicator. You need to have a good message. You need to have uh, a good deliverable that can be circulated throughout the organization, but there's that point of diminishing returns. And I think that's what you have to find as a organization is where's my point of diminishing returns with the consultants. Cause if, if you let them, if you let consultants in general, go past that, they're going to keep going, you know, and they're going to keep spending more and more time doing the simplest of tasks and, you know, going down rabbit holes, you don't need them going down. So you really have to manage those consultants and make sure you, you don't get too far past that point of diminishing returns. And so, that's what I think they're very good at. I don't know if they would articulate it that way or if they'd agree with me, but that's my observation is they seem to know intuitively how to do that. And um, I don't think he mentioned this in the interview, but he, he's told, I, I just know from working with him in the past that they they also, with their system integrator, they've a couple times now sort of recast the way that has been staffed. And I've never seen a client do that where as aggressively as, as Nucor does. They'll, they'll say, hey, we're running at a, you know, a run rate of, you know, X amount of money per month on this project. And we've got X number of consultants. We need to cut that back. And here's how we're going to cut it back. And they just take more of an active role in it. And it, and I think a lot of companies are afraid to do that. You know, they're afraid to challenge, you know, an Accenture or Deloitte who are the experts. And there's a hundred of them on your project. If you're a big company, you just are outnumbered. You know, if you're one person, one guy or gal, and you've got a hundred consultants that are all on the same page telling you, you need all hundred of us here it can be intimidating to go say, no, we're going to cut that in half actually, or whatever the number is. And Nucor is not afraid to do that. And I commend them for that. I think every organization should do that. And I, I, when I say every, I literally mean every organization should be willing to, um, you know, stick their neck out and say, this is our organization, our project, and this is how we're going to run it. And you can you certainly take advice from outsiders, but you, at the end of the day, have to make the decision that's right for your, your organization. So that that's uh i don't know if i answered your question directly it was a very long-winded answer but hopefully that got yeah no that was a perfect answer i think that's such valuable insights on just how to manage your external consultants and and make sure you're maximizing 
their value. Um, and he, Dan even said that with how he, I think it was how he felt at the beginning was I didn't know what questions to ask in the meetings. You know, it sounds like he came to it. I don't want to say green, but you know, with room to learn about it. And even so they've gotten to a point where they are okay challenging these big players, like you just mentioned. So, I mean, I guess that's a big note to our listeners is do not be afraid. I mean, you may not be fully cognizant, I guess, of all the ins and outs of a digital transformation, but you will be by the end of your transformation. So stay in it, stay present, stay, um, you know, hold everybody accountable that's internal to your team. That was one other thing that stood out to me is their weekly, their weekly standups for where exactly the project is um, in, in the grand scheme of things. And it helps them create kind of that group accountability and make sure everything's staying on track. Cause a seven year project, I mean, it's easy to get lost in it. I would imagine, especially for such a big company. So to have those weekly meetings, are you, do they bring the consultants into those stand up meetings? Um, I believe they do. Yeah. Okay. Got Personally it. Not in, but, but yeah, I, I believe the, the teams are, yeah. I know when we're, you know, we have different projects with them. Um, at different points, you know, cause they're not, um, you know, it's not like we're involved with one big work stream. Usually it's, 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 uh, at different points throughout, throughout the project. And, but when we are, there's, there's, uh, and we do this with our clients too. It's just a weekly stand up um, to make sure we're, we're all in sync. So it's a definitely, that's a good best practice in general. Right. I mean, just really, if you think about any department, anything, <laughs> having a weekly stand up with your team to make sure everybody's where they need to be, answer questions, just get in sync. It's important. So that makes sense. So another thing too, that he talked a lot about was business intelligence. So, you know, funneling in all of the data um, into one kind of common source so that they could make better decisions and provide that world-class customer experience. I'm curious, can you talk to me a little bit about business intelligence and how it differs from artificial intelligence. Is there overlap? What's the difference? Tell me about that. Sure. So they both involve uh, heavy amounts of data. So that's how they're similar, uh, both artificial intelligence and business intelligence. Uh, one is more, you know, business intelligence is a little more leaning towards traditional reporting and analytics. So, uh, you know, just being able to make sense of all the pieces of data. So it's basically presenting to business intelligence is focused on presenting to humans data in a way that is useful to them. So, you know, for example, if I want to know the profitability of, you know, a certain customer segment within a customer or a certain market in the, within a certain market in the world, I can, I should be able to slice and dice that data in a way that makes sense to me. And so business intelligence is a tool that allows you to do that. It's a, it's a lot like, reporting, but it's more than that. It's, it's reporting on steroids. I'd say it's more uh, getting deep into the analytics of the organization. Um, artificial intelligence, though, is different in that it's a step, it's going a step further where now you're not only taking data and you're not just spitting out information to humans that then use that information to make some sort of decision. It's actually making a decision or, or uh, making a recommendation for you based on that. So, um, in other, you know, for, as an example, artificial intelligence could be used for um, a common usage in the world of enterprise technology right now is uh, with like uh, purchase order uh, approvals and, and accounts payable. 
So you get an invoice and, you know, if you're an organization that's processing hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of invoices a, a month, artificial intelligence can look at that data, look for the patterns and identify where the outliers are, where the potential uh, points of fraud or outlying um, uh, receive, uh, payables might be. And it'll, it can automatically approve and process everything else. And it just flags the things that it thinks are not right based on history or other parameters. So it's, it's more of a, it's taking some sort of action or, or actually acting on the data, whereas business intelligence is more presenting the data in a way that humans can make sense of and make their own decisions. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because <laughs> it seemed like they would be fairly similar, but that's a distinct difference for sure. And I'm excited for the conversation with Stuart too, because he's going to dive deeper into artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies like robotics, RPA, um, and even blockchain. So I, I want to, I want to get to that in a second, but before we dive in, I mean, I, let's kind of expand on artificial intelligence too. Cause I think the whole concept is just fascinating. You know, it's, we're at the brink of it. We're not fully in it. I don't think, hopefully not. <laughs> and it's causing a lot of excitement, but a lot of fear from what it sounds like, you know, when I, even when I'm just talking to friends or family, it's, you know, are robots going to take over the world or is this something that's actually going to help progress us forward? Which I don't know. What do you think? I'd be the latter. What do you think? I think, I think bigger picture, it, it'll probably propel us forward. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, I think the problem isn't so much of the potential of what will happen in the long term. I think it's more of a short term fear uh, because, you know, if, if I'm a, if I'm doing a job that could be easily automated with robotics or artificial intelligence, um, I'm not in, in, if I'm, especially if I'm living paycheck to paycheck and I'm not a wealthy person, I'm not going to necessarily think, oh, that's okay. If they replace my job or automate my job, because it, in the long run, it's going to be a net benefit and it's going to create more opportunity and I'll just repurpose my skills and I'll go do something else. That may actually be what ends up happening in the long term, but right now you need to pay your bills and you are absolutely concerned that your job is being threatened. So I think that's a really important uh, thing or reality to keep in mind is that I think, you know, for a lot of us that are, you know, higher up in an organization and further along in our careers or whatever, we're sort of at that self-actualization point of our careers where we're not necessarily working to just pay bills or live paycheck to paycheck. But most of the world is. I mean, that's where most of the world is with within any organization. So you have to just recognize that just because you see the bigger picture, and even if you assume that everyone in your organization can see that bigger picture, the reality is, is there's a threat in the short term. And that's why change management is becoming even more important than it's ever been, because technology is becoming more of a, uh, a short-term threat on one hand, but more of a long-term opportunity on the other hand. So I think it's, it's both. And that's the hard part. And that's the confusing part of it is how could it possibly be that we would resist a technology that has so much potential to make things better? Well, the reason is because you are threatening my job right now. And I may not pay my bills right now because that technology might disrupt that. Right. And this is taking me back to your conversation with Dan too, because you're talking about <clears throat> a system overhaul, right? That is going to probably replace those lower value, uh, jobs more quickly than the other jobs that are out there. So it's kind of like, how are you going to, you know, motivate your employees who might be, you know, facing 
a loss of their job or even a complete pivot in their job. Because if you think about it, I mean, everybody, and Dan said it best is everybody takes ownership of what they do, no matter if they're, you know, pushing a button on the, you know, supply chain assembly line, or if they're, you know, pitching a huge deck to their executive board, you're taking ownership in the work that you do because it is what you think is going to get you ahead and help you grow within the company or within the organization you're at. So if, if a new technology is coming in to kind of steal your thunder, if you will, and take that ownership away from you, um, you know, what can you do as an employee? You know, if you're faced with this challenge where, you know, maybe your team or you yourself in your role are no longer going to have ownership of the tasks that you have been working on for so long, how can you kind of turn those lemons into lemonade? What would you say to an employee that's up against, you know, that challenge, whether it's with a basic ERP system or something as extensive as artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, I think the first thing I'd say is I don't know the bad news. I don't think there's a whole lot that most employees can do about it. Um, and that's, that's the bad news. Now, the good news is that the people that can do something about it are the, you know, the executive leadership, the project team, the people that are sort of driving the change and leading the change. Um, I know everyone wants to talk about, you know, the ground up, you know, bottom up sort of approach to change and the grassroots approach. Um, that's great. And you eventually want to get there, but a lot of times it has to come from the top and the, and the top is of the organization and the project uh, transformation needs to help define early on how how is this going to look for uh, fill in accounting. I know we recently published a blog that was about how robots are coming for fill in accounting and it was about this exact topic. So if you go to our website and just search up fill in accounting, you'll you'll find that blog. It's pretty interesting. But um, but if fill in accounting, uh, his job is going to get automated and let's just say 60% of his job could be automated with this new technology and we're going to roll it out here in two years. Uh, we have two years to figure out what are we going to do with Phil and how do we either repurpose him for another job or how do we redefine his role in a way and train him and develop him in a way that he can handle this new role so that by the time the technology comes and replaces that part of his old job, he's already sort of transitioning into his new job. I think what most organizations do though, which is a huge problem, is they don't really worry too much about it. They assume Phil's on board because it's going to make us more profitable and it's going to make his job easier because it's automating it. Well, no, Phil takes pride in the fact that he's doing all this manual work and the fact that the company or the organization depends on him to do this stuff manually, and he takes pride in that. So we have to recognize that and say, okay, well, Phil's not just going to embrace this. He may say he is, and on the surface he may want to, but the reality is there's going to be an underlying fear that's going to overcome him at some point along the way. So we have to figure out how to transition as early as possible from a change perspective. And most organizations wait way too long um, after the resistance to change is already well embedded within the organization. And then what ends up happening is you roll out this technology, you spend all this time and money rolling it out, and Phil ends up going back to the way he's always done things because he, he finds a reason to, to do that. And so you uh, kind of, everyone loses in that situation. Right. It's very important. I mean, OCM is a pillar to any type of digital project. And that's something we always talk about. Um, another thing, just to switch quickly to something else that I think is super interesting that I know Stuart's going to talk about is blockchain and this, you know, fascinating world of cryptocurrencies all based on blockchain and this whole blockchain technology. So I don't know, would you, I mean, talking about the crypto world, it's becoming more and more popular. 
by the day, by the minute. So I'm curious, would you invest in the crypto world? What are your thoughts on cryptocurrencies? Um, you know, I, honestly, and ironically, even though I'm an entrepreneur and have you know, started a company and run a company, I'm extremely risk adverse. So no, I, I have no desire to invest in cryptocurrency. I also don't like to go to Vegas and gamble. I don't like, even if it's just $5 on a hand of blackjack, I just hate losing money. So yep. um, I'd rather go with a, a, a sure bet. Now I know a lot of people have made money on cryptocurrency and there's probably tons of ways to make money there. I, I don't know a lot about it. That's the other thing. I compared to others in the tech world, I probably know a lot less about cryptocurrency. I know a lot about blockchain and, and its application in enterprise technologies, but as far as the connection with cryptocurrency and its real world application, I'm still not 100% clear on that. So nowhere near close to wanting to invest. I'm, I'm no Elon Musk, you know, in terms of <laughs> wanting to invest a ton of money in it. Yeah, I don't think you're alone. I mean, it's definitely a very complex, uh, just a completely different world when it comes to investing. And I'd say, for anybody that's thinking about investing in crypto, just look at it exactly as as Eric just said it. It is a gamble. Pretend like you're going to Vegas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very hit or miss. But with that, I still see companies that are starting to accept Bitcoin as payment. You know, it's hit or miss there too. If some companies are, some companies companies aren't. But I mean, just taking what your perspective is and knowing that a lot of people feel the same way. And also looking at the other side of the coin that, no pun intended, that there are people who are very into trading crypto. Would you advise businesses to start accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment going forward? I know Stu, Stu is going to talk about it, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. You know, honestly, if I were in that position, I, I would probably wait and see how things shake out with with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to see if it's a real thing. But there's part of me that thinks that this is like, you know, 20 years from now, our kids are going to be, you know, talking about cryptocurrency like it's some weird, bizarre foreign concept. And or we'll be talking about it nostalgically like we used to talk about, you know, Rubik's Cube or, or I did. I, I, you probably didn't, but I, I talked nostalgically about Pac-Man and Rubik's Cube, but it seems so outdated now. And, you know, it, it, almost like a flash in the pan. So I don't know. I'd, I'd wait and see if to see if it's a real legitimate long term uh, benefit. I, I think blockchain itself, I think that's legitimate. Um, you know, the underlying technology behind cryptocurrency, I think that's absolutely legitimate. But cryptocurrency itself, I'm not I'm not sold on that yet. But I'm, I'm a skeptic by nature. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> right. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm excited to hear what Stuart's thoughts are. I know he's going to be talking about, you know, all the different emerging technologies that are coming down the pipeline. And I'm curious to see where we land 5, 10, 20 years from now, as it relates to these Absolutely. Yeah, I'm excited for this. And, and uh, he's, he's got a good perspective on this. So we're going to uh, take a quick break and we're going to come back in our last segment here, talk with Stuart Robb from Third Stage Europe. And we'll talk about emerging technologies, including blockchain, AI, robots, and a bunch of other stuff. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us 
and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. Excited to have our next guest on the show who's been on here a few times now. Uh, Stuart Robb is our Vice President of Third Stage Europe. He's here to talk about emerging technologies. So rather than just talking about ERP and CRM and human capital management and all the sort of the usual suspects when it comes to enterprise technologies, he's going to talk about some of those emerging frontier technologies. And that's a, a passion of his and something he knows a lot about. So I'm excited to have Stuart on the show. So Stuart, thanks for being here today. Hi, good to see you again, Sarah. Absolutely. Now, I'm really excited to discuss this topic with you today because technology is evolving so quickly. And over just the last 10 years or so, legacy ERP and other business technologies have grown and evolved their functionalities while migrating to the cloud. And cloud-based technologies have become the new norm. And we are now seeing different types of emerging technologies speed to the forefront of society in a new way. So what are some of the frontier technologies that you are keeping an eye on as we progress into the future? Um, well, I, I think that you can probably kind of split them into two categories. Um, on the hardware side, um, we're seeing the re-emergence uh, re of uh, wafer-scale engine technology, um, which was a te technology first proposed in about 1980. Um, and uh, what we're seeing with that is uh, new companies coming along and producing uh, chips that are the size of iPads. Um, and now they've got trillions of transistors on one chip, which is you know way beyond what we get in our iPhones today. Um, and I also have been um, reading about um, some organisations that are now trying to create three-dimensional chips, so that rather than just everything being on one wafer scale, the, the, the chip interacts horizontally, uh, vertically as well as horizontally, um, mm -hmm. to include processing time. So I think you know we've got. A uh, few steps left or a few tricks to up our sleeve in terms of the hardware technology. Um, the other one that always probably makes a bit more, more news is uh, quantum computing. Um, I think quantum computing is probably there or not there. Uh, a bit like Schrodinger's cat, if you understand that joke. Um, but um, uh, on, the, you know, on the technology side, uh, things continue to accelerate. And... That's manifesting itself in the uh, software technology uh, that's starting to underpin that. And we are seeing now more use cases across a number of technologies. Um, artificial intelligence, uh, obviously, is one. Um, uh, the exploitation of uh, Bitcoin um, and cryptocurrency, uh, sorry, blockchain and cryptocurrency such as uh, Bitcoin is another. Um, and then, you know, everybody's making a big noise about robotic process or automation or um, screen scraping, as I call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to maybe like dive in a little bit deeper on these ones. So you mentioned blockchain. I'd love to start with that one. And it sounds like blockchain is the basis of cryptocurrency, which is quickly becoming more and more popular around the world. So what is blockchain and how does that work? Um, so... Um, I, I, funny enough, when I gave this um, uh, first presentation about a year ago, I, could, could, I had quite a lot of trouble explaining blockchain because I actually think there was no scientist in the world that really understood what it was. But I actually came across someone 
um, uh, late last year, who was actually able to explain it in pearls of one syllable and make it really easy, um, uh, which was a godsend. So I'm going to try and just repeat what um, he said. Um, and basically, uh, a blockchain is a list of records um, that a sequential list of records that have had the timestamp uh, of the previous block um, and uh, the transaction data uh, encoded by a cryptographic hash. And so once that block is in that chain, uh, that cryptographic hash is repeated in the next block. So that if you try, and the next, and the next, and the next. So if you took this block and you tried to edit it in any way, then the cryptographic hash that have applied to this block will change, which will therefore have changed every other block. So you know that this block has been tampered with and therefore is invalid. So the reason that's good is you've got a way of encoding data that you can always prove is the valid truth just by looking at subsequent blocks in the chain and you can see whether it's tampered with. So in theory, um, it, it's a way of uh, securing data that is uh, uh, unamendable. It's like having a it's like having a, a image on a read once, sorry, write once read only CD ROM. Once the record is written to the CD ROM, you can't change it. Well, this is the same technology, but on a transactional basis. Um, yeah. It's becoming ubiquitous. I mean, now we've not only got blockchain and you know, even comedy chains now, there's a few floating about that just seem to be based on cartoon characters, which strikes me as getting towards the, the left-hand side of bizarre. Um, but even, um, you know, typical Elon Musk's girlfriend, mm -hmm. Mrs. Grimes or Miss Grimes, I don't know what we should call her, um, she's been using um, non-fungible tokens. Mm -hmm. Now, who on earth ever thought, non-fungible tokens was a good idea to call something um, but that's a way of digitally certifying digital art as being a true and original it uses the same blockchain technology um, and so once you have got a certificate that that art is um, that that art is blockchain encoded then the, you can never have a different piece of art that replaces it or replicate it because the blockchain certificate would be different. So that's that's kind of what it is. Um, it, 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 it's mostly used in, I mean, the, the, the obvious place for this is in payments, mm -hmm. um, because that's where uh, this technology most naturally sits. So you find blockchain getting, you know, bankers and, and um, investment uh, organizations getting quite excited about blockchain. Um, truthfully, um, it's not a, it's not a, 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 a thing that excites me too much, so um, I, I don't lose any sleep over it. Um, I think one of the interesting things about um, blockchain is that um, uh, it, 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 sorry, Bitcoin is that it comes into fashion and then goes out of fashion again. Um, I mean, Elon Musk said that they will accept this Bitcoin for Teslas. Um, and that lasted about two weeks, in which case the, um, the, the value of a Bitcoin went from $55 million trillion to $56 million trillion. Um, and then two weeks later, Elon Musk said, oh, actually, I don't like Bitcoin because it uses up too much energy and it's contributing to climate change. So Bitcoin went from $56 trillion million down to about £4.60. And, you know, um, so... I don't like it. I mean, it's just, 
So that's Bitcoin. Yeah. No, totally. There's, I think, a lot of mixed emotions and a little bit of confusion. Well, some people have made some good money out of it and good luck to them. You know, personally, I like to keep my bank, bank notes under my bed because <laughs> probably because I'm quite old, right? It's like my dad. He, he definitely has got his, like, safe stash somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, though. Cash is king, right? Absolutely. At least in this day still. It will become the, um, uh, come the Armageddon or whatever it is, the... Uh, Revelations, that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah. Day of no, judgment. For sure. And I wanted to ask you, like, how does the increasing popularity of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin affect business around the world? Obviously, we mentioned uh, Elon, but do you think it's yeah. in a business's best interest to begin accepting Bitcoin as payment? Um, I, I, I think it's patchy. Um, I think it's a bit gimmicky still. Um, you know, I don't walk in with my iPhone to Sainsbury's and say, oh, please, can I pay with 0.000012 Bitcoins from my Mars bar? You know, we're not there yet. And I'm skeptical that that will ever happen. I think Bitcoin is the ubiquitous universal currency um, that may one day come to pass. Um, but I still think it's quite a long way off. Um, I, I mean, I think there's probably more chance of the euro being a successful currency than there is Bitcoin becoming the world currency. But there's a controversial statement, but we will see, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Now, I wanted to transition to artificial intelligence. So AI is a concept that I think excites some and also terrifies others. So from what I understand at its core, artificial intelligence is simply put, as pattern recognition. So could you maybe give out your own definition of what artificial intelligence is? Um, well, what's interesting, I think, is, um, is that the definition of artificial intelligence changes every time you ask anyone. Um, and actually, there was quite a good, um, uh, there's quite a good quote um, uh, that said, uh, something like, uh, as soon as um, you say that artificial intelligence can do something, that is not therefore artificial intelligence because now it's just intelligence. And so, you know, that's that's kind of, um, uh, it's a bit of a moving goalpost. Um, the, the question really is, what is intelligence? Mm -hmm. um, because um, we had IBM Watson play Jeopardy between two human contestants and the Watson won. Now, did it win because it was intelligent or did it win because it had much faster powers of, um, of uh, uh, recall and deductive reasoning than a human? And is deductive reasoning intelligence or is intelligence actually emotional knowledge, critical thinking, you know, a whole load of other things. And so, um, you know, the, you start to get into very dangerous waters. Um, another good example of this, actually, um, in about 1974, five, roughly there, um, I was uh, about eight or nine years old. We went to the science museum and we looked at an old-fashioned computer. Okay, I was nine years old and we're talking about 40 years ago. So these were really, really old computers. Um, but one of them had a teletype and it had a little game on it. And the game was quite a simple game. It was the What Am I game. 
which actually I still can't find any example of. It must exist somewhere, but um, I've been looking for a historical one to run on my own teletype over there. I've not managed to find one yet. But basically the concept of the, concept of the game is that uh, you would say, um, it, would say uh, it will try and guess what animal you're thinking of. So it will say, um, um, uh, what kind of, uh, uh, does your animal have four legs? And you'll say, yes. And it will say, I think your animal is a dog. Mm. You'll say, no. And it'll say, okay, what animal is it? And you'll say, a cat. And then it'll say, well, what is the difference between a dog and a cat? What question could I ask that would differentiate a dog and a cat? And you say, uh, something like, I, 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 I don't know, does it scratch you or something? Um, and then next time you go through the game, it'll ask, what kind of animal are you? And you say, yeah, sorry, what are you, animal, fish or mineral, or whatever. Then you go, uh, are you, have you got four legs? And you go, yes. And it go, well, then go, uh, does it scratch you? And you'll say, yes, therefore your animal is a cat. Now, is that intelligence? See, I don't think that's intelligence. I think that's just critical thing. It's deductive reasoning built into an algorithm in a computer. I don't think it's intelligent. Mm. But that's all a chatbot is, effectively. A chatbot is exactly that. It builds up a database of intelligence out of keywords. And when you type the keywords in, it gives you the answer. The problem is that 50% of the time the answer is useless. Um, and you still can't get to the human being who can actually solve your problem. Like, great example on... Um, uh, UPS's website, I had to pay a customs charge. So I said, so I, um, I, I um, went onto the chatbot and said, uh, I need to pay a customs charge. And it gave me all the instructions about how to pay the customs charge, except I didn't have an account. So I had to set up an account. When I set up the account, there was no way to link the account to the charge that I got in my hand. Uh, so I said, how do I link charge to the, how do I link the invoice to the account? And it goes, here's help on invoices. Uh, you know, invoice payment is it? And it was, you know, useless. And was there any option to go, please speak to a human? No, of course there wasn't. So the chatbot just failed, you know, useless. Um, and that's, unfortunately, that's still a lot of end user people's experience is that the AI runs out of intelligence, unfortunately, pretty bloody quickly. And then you're left with the dumb computer and the frustrated customer who hangs on the phone for 40 minutes, wait, listen to their stupid music while you actually try to speak to somebody who has some genuine intelligence as opposed to artificial intelligence. So those are the kind of, you know, use cases um, that you're seeing AI uh, come in a, a, a lot. Um, but there are developments in AI. I mean, it's, it's, it's never going to be static. Um, and um, some examples of that um, include things like, um, uh, you know, we already know fuzzy logic in AI, which is, you know, weighting data rather than taking absolute. So, you know, is it hot or cold outside, you know, is a subjective question, not an absolute question. I mean, you could say it's cold if it's, you know, 30 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees. Um, but in Siberia, that might be hot, yeah, because minus 40 is cold or Antarctica. So um, fuzzy logic is sorting out data based on weighting rather than absolute yeses or noes. And that's been around for donkey's years. Um, 
But then you go on to things like artificial neural networks uh, and you try and put on a reasoning and inference engine in front of that. And a lot of what we're seeing in AI at the moment is our inference engines or trying to infer data from past patterns. You call it pattern recognition. And that's pretty much what it is. And even in the... Um, um, even in the um, uh, uh, human facial recognition, that's, you know, pattern recognition um, to a very large extent. Um, uh, and, and so the way those work is that they work on statistical models. And the more that a model, um, the more the statistics they gather, the more the model tends to reflect the biases of the data that's going into it. And that produces its own problems, and those problems are things like um, uh, AI bias. So, you know, a university, um, this is a known case, uh, a university um, created a model and it used students from the university um, to participate, to, to create the base data for the model um, and do the initial learning. And uh, most of the students who came forward were young 20x white males um, because that happened to be the demographic of the university I'm not sure if it was MIT or Harvard it was it was one of those types of universities and so the model then automatically had an unconscious bias that if you were old female or from a ethnic ethnicity you were less likely to be successful in that model or to profile correctly than you were if you were a white 20 year old male so there are all sorts of un expected things that where we go through experiential learning the way that they're programming the algorithms and the way that they're populating the data is much more constrained and much more subjective and therefore you get unexpected results and so the latest i say the latest technology again um neuromorphic computing actually has been around since the 1980s um, but they're now trying to create proper artificial, uh, uh, sorry, um, neuron-based computing um, that learns in the same way as a human brain. Um, uh, so it doesn't work on statistical models. Um, it works on uh, a reinforcement of a value, belief, a value and a belief. And so the stronger the link, the more insightful it becomes. I, I, you know, I think probably, uh, I mean, that's quite a long answer, but the, 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 where, that, where that leaves us is that in um, our little world of ERP, you know, there is a huge capacity for uh, the um, technology to make a massive impact. And it has not made even scratch the surface at the moment in terms of impact. Um, we've got a little bit in terms of accounts receivable, AI, um, you know, that helps us find bad payers um, and, and manage those automatically. We've got accounts payable, OCR, invoice recognition. Um, that's been around again since well before the year 2000. Um, so that's not new, but actually now it's probably just about at the point that it's usable and valuable. Um, but really, you know, uh, and I think the other places, the other one that's quite a good use case is in demand planning. Um, so N4 have got a demand planning module that's based on AI. Um, and uh, so I've been told it knocks everybody else's out of the park. So, you know, lots and lots and lots of opportunities, not very much in terms of exploitation at the moment.
Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's just so interesting, all of these insights about, you know, shedding the light on what we're up against with these new and emerging technologies. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to continue discussing the progression of artificial intelligence and dive deeper into the power of robotics. So we'll be right back. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. So let's continue exploring these frontier technologies, shall we? So when discussing the power of artificial intelligence, there are certainly incredible benefits to adopting AI into business operations. And yet many people and even organizations are hesitant to accept and adapt or adopt this technology. So I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Like what are the benefits of AI as it re relates to business? Um, uh, well, you know, the, the, the obvious benefit um, that all of the finance directors and the CFO likes is that potentially it removes headcount costs from the organization because in theory you need less people to do the tasks that the AI is able to do for you without any human intervention. Um, now that's quite a difficult sweet spot to find because a lot of organizations, they'll put in something like a chatbot or an accounts payable um, invoice automation tool, and then they will rapidly diminish the size of their AP or their call center or, or you know, their HR team or whatever and then find that there is a residue of inquiries that the checkbox will not be able to cope with or invoices that can't be recognized uh, and go too far. And then all of a sudden they're, you know, uh, getting backlogs of problems or poor service levels or whatever. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the lesson there is you know don't try and go too fast don't assume the chatbot is just going to learn everything on the first day and the second day you can get rid of your complete call center because that's you know obviously not sustainable i think the other thing as well which drives me nuts and it's just so dumb is that they don't give any way they don't link the chatbot to the ability to speak to a human if the chatbot has not managed to solve your problem and that is so frustrating because the chatbots could probably take about 40% of the traffic away from the call center. And there are some studies that say, you know, it, it, it varies between sort of 40 to 50%. Some get some claim 60. Of course, the chatbot vendors claim 80% or 90%, and that's naturally rubbish. Um, but if you get to the point at which you've got to the chatbot and you can't go any further, you then have to get on the bleeding phone and start faffing about with the phone. There's no, you know, I've even typed into a jackpot, can I speak to a human, please? And it does not compute. And it just is 
nuts, mad, stupid. Anyone who is doing chatbot, if you do that, you should be fired. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, there, there are clear benefits to the organisation. Uh, yes, organisations are hesitant. Um, if you're an organisation that is getting 50 invoices from suppliers a month, does it make any sense to spend $100,000 putting in an invoice automation tool? No, it doesn't. So they don't. So there's one immediate obvious use case where that's only going to, to, to be a value if you've got a very high number of, um, of accounts payable invoices that you need to automate. Um, the same is true of accounts receivable. So if you've got um, lots of very high, uh, sorry, if you've got a small number of very high value transactions, then putting a tool in to try to automate those is going to be no benefit at all. Uh, they will work where you've got a large number of lower volume or lower value transactions that you can't have a human being eyeballing all the time. So you want to take all of the chaff away and focus on the very big uh, outstandings to be dealt with by the humans. And in fact, we're doing that for a customer at the moment. Um, and, and that's actually, we're, we're trialing that right now with a with a, a product called Hyradius. So um, yes, people uh, are hesitant about it. Um, in, some, in some cases, you get resistance just because people think it's going to do them out of a job. And I said my personal experiences that they are not good enough yet to to really drive significant headcount reduction they will drive some um, but it tends to be on the lower value kind of jobs and roles anyway um, you know not, not more what I would call complex problem solving roles that tends to be um, more um, uh, more uh, you know inquiry handling roles and those whether that's AI or whether it's just a vendor or portal or a customer portal you know those those are roles that aren't terribly rewarding anyway yeah absolutely and I can totally relate to those bots being super frustrating sometimes you just wouldn't be able to get to that person if you know it's unable to answer your question so yeah I'm mentioning UPS by name because I actually this happened to me about four weeks ago and it was very, very frustrating. And so if you're watching UPS, just fix it now. Yeah, Facebook's kind of the same, so I'll call them up. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. There we go. Let's see if we can go down the A to Z of all great American companies and see yeah. if they meet our approval or not. <laughs> so annoying. Especially when it comes to the Facebook ad side of things. That's where I've been having issues. But you, you also mentioned robotic process automation as one of these frontier technologies catching wind. So what is robotic process automation and how does that work? Um, it's a lot less exciting than it sounds, actually. Yeah. Um, but it has some interesting use cases and I can, uh, I, I'll offer a, a couple up. Um, in the 1990s, we invented something called screen scraping, which was a pretty horrible word. And basically what it did was that it looked, uh, it, it uh, recorded um, the interactions with a set of screen full of fields. And then it could repeat that um, interaction over and over again using different input data, as long as it knew what the data was and the context of it was. Um, so you could use that uh, typically, for example, to get your um, um, your um, PC to interact with your IBM mainframe, but rather than see horrible green screen characters, you'd see a nice Windows interface with a drop-down list and what 
what have you. And that concept was called screen scraping. So the enhancement of that is called robotic process automation, where um, based on a set of input data, that data can be input into the, um, the, uh, the form um, automatically. So if I had QuickBooks, for example, I'm using that illustratively, it will know where all the fields in QuickBooks are. And if I feed the RPA tool the raw data of an invoice in a CSV file, for example, it will populate each of the fields correctly and save it and move on to the next one. And it'll do it infinitely faster than I can. Now, where is that useful? Well, we have a repetitive task of data entry over and over and over and over again, then RPA is an exceptionally useful tool. And in fact, RPA, so there are two parts to um, invoice automation. There's the OCR scanning and recognition part, which is I've seen an invoice, I understand what that invoice looks like, I understand where the data is, and I've extracted that data. So that's the AI part. And then the RPA part is I'm now going to take that data and I'm going to squirt it indirectly to the ERP using the standard ERP form without you having to change the ERP. And in fact, you can go further than that with RPA because you could have two ERPs and you can say, right, if the uh, invoice to address is company X, I'm going to send it to that ERP. And if it's company Y, I'm going to send it to that ERP. And I know, even though those two ERPs might be different, what the form looks like and can enter the data. So that's what RPA is in concept. Now, the, 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 the most interesting use case, that, uh, so uh, that's definitely a problem looking a bit for a solution, right? Because most people have um, got a reasonably good automation anyway for their ERP. If they've got a way of squirting the data into an ERP directly through an integration, they already do. Um, so I, I, the, the use cases for this are not nearly as ubiquitous as you might think, despite the cleverness of the technology. Um, what is, though, quite interesting is the fact that um, a company that I came across uh, actually through a LinkedIn conversation uh, um, do a, a tool that is an RPA-based tool that allows you to repeatly, repetitively build and rebuild your Oracle configuration from scratch. Um, and it does it ludicrously fast. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to create a base Oracle configuration that will work almost for, for most organizations um, with you tailoring it. Um, but as anyone who's ever worked on um, BBS or Oracle Cloud knows, it's an extraordinarily difficult and manual process to move a configuration from one environment to another. And if you schedule it with Oracle, it takes months. It's, it's a horrible and a shocking process. Um, and this tool can do it in about two hours. Um, so, you know, those are, the little, those are the little things that are useful to know because, you know, those can save a lot of effort and time in an ERP project. Um, and that's a great example of where that technology can really add some value. So, um, um, you know, uh, like all of these things, I'm sure there'll be loads of people phoning in and, 
um, and writing uh, in the chat. Oh, we use it for this, we use it for that. And I'd love to hear that because, as I said, the clients that I'm talking to at the moment, I, I very, very few are using any form of RPA, despite the fact that it's now been around for about five or more years. Oh, wow. Yeah, super interesting. I wanted to ask, is there like also like an overlap or can there be an overlap in robotics process automation? And yeah, well, that's what I said about that. That's the use case I gave with the um, uh, OCR, and uh, the, mm -hmm. the invoice automation. The AI is taking care of the recognition side of it, which is recognizing the invoice and the, right. the text. And then the RPA is actually the part of it that squeezes, squirts into the ERP. Um, and some of them, again, most of them use a direct integration. So they will squirt it into the ERP using an Oracle connector or a NetSuite connector or a Dynamics connector that will send the data in XML format, in raw format, straight to the ERP. But you can get tools, uh, there are one or two about, that you don't have to worry about um, the connector. You can squirt it into any ERP. And where that's a good use case is when you've got an ERP that nobody's ever heard of, um, that is, you know, massively, massively out of date, um, uh, of which I'm afraid there are still, uh, you know, very many, um, thousands and thousands, in fact, um, of ERPs on the market, and, you know, 90% of them are ones you've never heard of before, or sorry, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, 90% of the ones you've never heard of before, and half of those are out of support now, and so if you wanted to exploit this kind of new technology, wanted to do invoice automation this is a great second alternative to ripping your erp out and starting again totally awesome yeah that definitely clarifies and do you believe that these technologies that we discussed today will continue to grow in their adoption rate like 5 10 20 years from now or do you think some of these will fizzle out well it, it, you know that's a that's a really interesting question um i mean the answer is probably um uh, you know, if you'd asked people in the 1980s whether PCs were going to become widely used and take over mainframes, they would have gone, no, never in my lifetime. And now, you know, the mainframe is the thing that's stuck in the data center in the corner. And, you know, people forget what that was all about. Now we have new mainframes called Google and, and Amazon and Azure. So, you know, we've all moved on and technology has moved on. Um, and it's like the telephone, right? We still use a telephone, um, but, um, you know, the telephones that we had in the 1970s and 80s, you know, were big plastic things with green handsets. Um, and now, you know, they're more like Star Trek communicators. So, it, you know, it's impossible to say what technology is going to look like in um, 20 years. What I, if I was to make a hypothesis, um, I think that... Um, the the artificial intelligence will come a lot closer to what we would naturally believe to be real intelligence. Um, whether or not um, that intelligence will become self-aware um, and then we'll try to pull the plug and then it'll send off all the nukes like they did in Terminator, I think is probably less likely. Um, um, uh, and, you know, are we ever going to see a situation like iRobot um, where we've got um, robots walking up with the DHL parcel saying, here is your parcel. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I dropped it and I broke it for you, um, like they do for humans. I think that's possible, 
Um, likely, maybe, definitely, don't know. Uh, you know, uh, who can predict the future? I, uh, it's a bit of a reach for me to say where I, what I think the next big thing is. I certainly think that you know we're not living in a in a in a uh, in an environment that that stands still. Um, but you know, if you believe Elon Musk, um, which I do religiously, obviously, um, then we're actually already already part of an AI program that's already running, and actually we don't exist, even though I think therefore I am would tend to suggest otherwise. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, everything's constantly progressing, and only time will be able to tell, I guess. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. And. And this whole conversation has been super, super informative. So I wanted to thank you for all, all of your insights today. Now, yeah. if our listeners wanted to learn more, what are some resources that you might suggest for them? Oh, I'll tell you, actually, I mean, I, um, I read a lot of Wikipedia, actually. And when I've got a downtime, um, uh, you know, and I, I will just see where all the links take me. Um, so, you know, things like uh, uh, we were talking about Turing machines and von Neumann architectures and things like that. Um, and uh, part of that linkage took me to neuromorphic computing and wafer scale, uh, uh, wafer scale engines. Um, solo paradox was something that um, I found out about a month or so ago and, and, and looked at that. Um, and, and it really is a very good resource. And it's a lot, there's a huge amount of information that on Wikipedia that I would say, you know, 80% of which is, is pretty robust and pretty factual. Um, you know, obviously, like, you know, on the internet, there are 70 billion things that are not factual and are complete rubbish. But in general, I actually found Wiki to be a good starter resource, and then it'll give you further reading, and that's when you can really get in and you can see what papers have been written and where it's all going. Awesome. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. All right. Well, thank you, Stuart. That was a great discussion. Thanks for being on the show again. He's, he's a uh, repeat guest on the show and he's a fan favorite. So glad to have, always good to have Stuart here on the show. And uh, we're going to wrap things up for today. And Parisa, thanks again for another great episode. We appreciate having you on the show and uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. See you next week. All right. Thanks everyone. And we'll see you next time on Transformation Ground Control. Mm-hmm.